בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה. We are, ברוך השם, in the 10 days of תשובה. Between these, it's called the 10 days of תשובה, because there's 10 days that separate ראש השנה and יום כיפור. The judgment day from the appeal day. Now we finished. Excuse me, I did a bracha before. We did a... Um, we did go through Rosh Hashanah, we went through Judgment Day, and uh, everyone, Bezat Hashem, hopefully went to Bet Knesset, listened to Shofar. Listening to the Shofar is the Ikal of Rosh Hashanah. And uh, if it wasn't for listening to the Shofar, I believe most people wouldn't even go to Bet Knesset at all. Um... Some people come just because of the Shofar itself. Sometimes it's better that they don't come at all, though. Because they come and they come talk and chit-chat and they bring their kids with the Bamba and the Beastly and the Krembo. Somebody told me on the internet that she agrees with everything I said about the Bamba and the Beastly with the kids, but she prefers to give their kids Krembo. <laughs> I found it very funny. Very funny person. Uh, and it's true, though. It's a, some people come to uh, Beknesset to socialize, uh, which is a very, very careless thing to do because uh, in every Bet Knesset there has to be at least a few people that did not come to socialize. Uh, there has to be a few. Uh, and one of the reasons is because Chazal teaches us that Bet Knesset that doesn't have people that are serious turn into churches eventually. And uh, if you want to see a modern-day example of it, there was recently a uh, very, very big fancy-schmancy synagogue. I believe it was in Ireland. But um, don't quote me on that. It's uh, somewhere in that part of the world that after many, many years was uh, shut down and it's not going to be turned to a church. For a Jewish synagogue to turn into a church... It's, there's no bigger choban than that. There's no bigger disgrace to the Torah than that. You're going to turn the place of Hashem into a place of Abu Dazara. It's supposed to be the opposite, the time of Mashiach. But when you see the video, they, you know, they, 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 people sent around the video about how the people from the Keilah are sad that they're shutting down the Beknesset. And, uh, you know, after so many years, but only... Five second, ten second look into the video, you realize exactly why they're shutting down the Beknesset. The guys that are carrying the Sifret Torah from the Aron HaKodesh are wearing t-shirts and shorts with long hair. The, uh, the women that are following them have no sleeves, no modesty whatsoever. They're hugging and kissing each other, the guys and the girls. And you uh, say, oh, Baruch Hashem that they shut down the synagogue. Baruch Hashem. Synagogue like this, Baruch Hashem, they shut it down. It's not a surprise. But unfortunately today, a lot of synagogues have a problem because a lot of synagogues have a um, very difficult time controlling the crowd during the holidays. I don't envy any rabbi that runs a keilah today. Uh, I told a couple of my rabbi friends that have keilot that um, I, Mamash, I'm not jealous at all. You know, a few people have asked me if I want to start a keilah, almost, well, Hashem, many times. 
They asked me, and the answer is constantly no. I don't want to run a keila. No, thank you. You can build a synagogue for yourself. Don't build one for me. Baruch Hashem, there's plenty of synagogues. There's not plenty of Jews. We need more Jews. And running a keila is a very, very big responsibility. You have to be there all the time. You have to be there every day. And you have to find a way to overcome the yetzerah of money 24 hours a day because in the old days, in the old days, and I don't mean old days like a thousand years ago. I mean old days like a generation ago, two generations ago. Our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, not that long ago. In the old days, the rabbis would supervise the businessmen. The rabbis of the kilot, they were the rabbis of the community, and they would oversee what all of the businessmen of the town are doing. If you did kosher business, chazaku baruch. If you didn't do kosher business, they put you on chelem. In the old days, the rabbis supervised the businessmen. Today, the businessmen supervise the rabbis. In many places, the businessmen make the board. They have this new Toivat Hashem rule that all of these little rinky-dink operations with $100,000, $200,000 budgets also have to have a board. Million-dollar budget, $5 million budget, $100,000 budget. Everybody wants to feel important. Every synagogue has a board. They barely have a minyan, but they have to have a board. And the minyan usually is comprised of people that most of the time, they're more business than they are Torah. Sometimes they don't even keep Torah. Not more business than Torah. There is no Torah. They're just business. But they're they're the rabbi's boss. They're the rabbi's boss. This is goal nefesh. This is disgusting. To Hashem, to the Torah... When you have a businessman supervising Torah. What's worse than this? I gave you two things you already know. No chidush. Third one's also no chidush. We talked about it a thousand times. In the old days, rabbis would supervise the businessman. Today we have the businessman supervising the rabbis. But then we have something else in this generation that's relatively unique. We've always had businessmen supervising rabbis in some parts of the world. Today, it's just the majority. But now we have something unique, very unique in this generation. We have a businessman that pretends to be a rabbi. And he's just hanging out with his friends, the rest of the businessmen. But he pretends to be a rabbi. Every two seconds, there's a new little minag to get more money from the keila. Every five seconds, there's a new kombina. Oh, we need money for the homeless and the orphans and the, and this and the sick. And, 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 and Rabbi Vadya, before he died, he sent me a message and he told me to tell you guys six years later to give a donation now. It was a prophecy. And the metumtamim, the fools, they give him money. Why? Because they think it's actually going to the orphans and the sick and the this. If all the money that people donate for the orphans and the sick and the homeless actually went to them, they'd be richer than us. Oh no, Rav Kanievsky signed every two days. Rav Kanievsky sends an email. He does, I don't even think Rav Kanievsky has ever seen a computer. 
But every two days he sends an email. Yeah, Rav Kanievsky says you should donate to this. You should donate to this. And they put his pictures today. It's easy to get pictures. Not like the old days. You actually have to have the real picture. Today, you take one picture, you put it on the internet one time, the rest of the world has your picture. And if you want to really get sophisticated, you could hire Sonny, you could put the head of that picture on somebody else's head, on somebody else's body. What do you want? What's the problem? You have somebody that has skill, you could take his head, Rav Kanievsky's head, put it on Betzalel. Betzalel will be, you know, Rav Kanievsky's head. Why? You can tell? You can tell. Every two days, Rav Kanievsky says, uh, donate this, donate this. And I have a very, very hard time believing that even half of these campaigns are real. Even half. I have a hard time believing even half of them are real. If, if 10% of them are real, I'd be surprised, personally. I don't know for sure. But it's very hard for me to believe. But people are looking for combino. People are looking for shortcuts. Why? Because it's measure for measure. Hashem says, you don't want to do Torah and Mitzvot. You don't want to do Tshuva. You want to do real Tshuva, right? Okay, you are looking for Kumbina. Okay, I'll match you, measure for measure. I'll match you. You're looking for Kumbina. I'll match you with somebody that's also looking for a sucker. The businessman that's pretending to be a rabbi, I'll match you, I'll match you the two with you. He's looking for a customer. You're looking for somebody to make you feel good. Ah! They say from, from Briata Olam, what is Hashem doing since he created the world? Mezavek Zivugim, right? It says. In the Gemara, it says Mezavek Zivugim. He makes, he makes couples together. It doesn't only mean, it doesn't only mean a Baal Vaisha. Also, the fools and the, and the ones that are looking to fool people. Chidush. So now, Rabotai Karim, you have, unfortunately, a lot, it's very hard to be a rabbi today. Why? Because if you're a real rabbi, that means that your boss is going to be a businessman. Now you're going to tell your businessman boss, hey, businessman boss, you have to do tshuva first, before the whole keilah. Businessman is going to fire you. So what are you going to do? You have to be like quiet, little nachnach, misken, you can't say this, you can't say that. You have to get approval for your lectures. Chaval, misken, what are you going to do? On the other hand, if you don't say anything, you don't say anything. You know, you read in the Torah, you see Gemara, Maseret Rosh Hashanah, Maseret Rosh Hashanah, page 17a. You look at it, it says people go to Genom, they don't leave. Maseret Rosh Hashanah. There's some sinners, they go to Genom, they don't leave. In Rosh Hashanah it says. No, you're not going to tell the Keilah. What's going to happen? What do you think they're going to do with you? In Shemaim. Shemaim. So what do you do? Honestly, I don't know. That's why I don't want the job. I can't tell you what I would do. Be'ezrat Hashem, I believe I would do the right thing. But I don't envy anyone who doesn't. Who has this keilah. Because it's such a difficult situation. Because everyone wants to be a chachmolog. Everybody wants to be a smarty pants. And try to figure out, no, 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 I'm not going to say, but I'll get them to do it in a different way. I'll get them to do tshuva in a different way, a soft approach, a soft approach, the love approach. I'll show them love, and then I'll, and then I'll approach them. And I'll approach them, and then love. And then the love, and then I'll approach them. And before you know it, you approach them so much, you come out, and you're just like them. But you don't realize it yet. You don't realize that you became part of the garbage. 
and you see businessmen turned rabbis, or rabbis turned businessmen, or whatever mix in between, little shakshuka, you see that there's a ton of money going into the kila. Every aliyah, 10,000, 5,000, 20,000, this thousand, that thousand, but not a single person does tshuva. Not a single person does tshuva. But a lot of money goes to the keilot. Lots of money. You see, sometimes you see they come out with different things on their websites. People put pictures on their websites on the betkneset of the events. Or they come out with uh, calendars with pictures of the keilah, the events. Or the different types of tchotchkes that, to raise more money. You see, all of these money-making campaigns, Mamash have to turn Judaism into the biggest business in the world. But it's not even like a honest business. I mean, you see it, it's not following the rules. It's not Judaism anymore. You have calendars and websites and all types of shtuyot with immodest women and the pictures. You said it's Judaism. How could be immodest woman be on your website? How could she be on your calendar? How can she be on your flyers? How could you have immodest women and all these things? How? You said it's Judaism. You said you're orthodox. There's also Greek orthodox, but that's Catholicism. Maybe it's that. Maybe we're just confusing. It just kind of looks the same. So, it's a lot of confusion. So today, we have Shur number 136 in the series. And uh, we're almost finished with this Perek of the Mishnah. Be'ezot Hashem, this will be the last one in this uh, particular section. Um, I think this is probably going to take more than one Shur, Be'ezot Hashem. But uh, one of the questions we're going to try to answer is, what is Tshuva Be'emet? What is tshuva? Now, if you ask the average person what's tshuva, if they did it or they didn't do it, their answer will change. But even if you ask somebody that knows a few things, what's tshuva? Most likely they're going to tell you, all you got to do is look at the Rambam, Ilchot tshuva, second halacha, tells you what tshuva is. First halacha, Tells you what Shuvah is. Chapter 2. Tells you what Shuvah is. Well, what's Shuvah? Shuvah just stops sinning, no? Shuvah, you stop sinning. You go, you make mitzvot, you go keep Shabbat. The wife starts wearing modest clothes. And because I sense that people don't understand what I mean by modesty, I'm going to have to start describing it to you guys. Because it seems like there are many people that are watching our shiurim and they think they did tshuva. And they send me questions, and I can't answer their questions before I rebuke them. And it's very difficult for me, because they send me questions, and in today's world, everybody that sends you a question, you can see their picture, because they have a profile picture. And for some reason, the Satan has confused everyone into thinking that putting their picture is a good thing. Like advertising what they look like half naked is a good thing. So many women send me send me their picture with a question. And I can't answer their question because I have to deal with the picture first. Because now she just made me sin accidentally because naturally you see it. 
So she thinks it's perfectly fine. And her, she sent her picture to other people and they also think it's perfectly fine. So modesty, for anyone who doesn't know, please take this the right way. Understand, this is not a rule I made. They didn't ask me in Shamaim at Matan Torah, what do you think about this? Modesty means clothing, but also behavior. It's not just one or the other. It's clothing and behavior. It's for males and for females. Males mean men, females mean women. No, Rabotai, we have to explain. If your dog doesn't wear clothes, it's okay. He's not supposed to. In fact, if he wears clothes, it's a little strange. I remember when I lived in New York, I had a few neighbors that would put clothes on their dogs. It's a little strange. The wife didn't wear clothes, but the dog did. It's a little strange in this world. I'm just letting you know, if you have a neighbor like this, or if you're like this, take the dog's clothes, put it on yourself first. If there's still some left, you can put it on the dog again. But if the dog has clothes, you don't have any clothes, lot sanua, lot of. You cannot say, ah, no, no, I'm patu for mitzvot. Why? All my clothes are on the dog. You can't. You have to have clothes first. So now, men and women have to be modest. Modesty for a woman means, as far as clothes, clothes, all of our clothes have to be loose-fitting. Loose-fitting means it's not the slinky material that clings to your skin, which pretty much means it doesn't matter even if it's 10 sizes too big, I still know exactly every single curve you have in your body. The point is for it to give everything to the imagination of the public, but your husband, Baruch Hashem, he knows. Loose-fitting. Now, it becomes more difficult for women to find loose-fitting clothes if they gain weight, if they, uh, if they uh, are pregnant, and so on and so forth. But you have to do your best. This is where the other stuff comes in. Second part is, aside from loose-fitting, is that it cannot be attractive colors to the extent where you're like a, 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 some type of light pole. Like every time you, you come to the street, the whole street stops because they think it's red. It needs to be colorful. You can be colorful. You don't have to only wear black. You don't only have to wear uh, you know, uh, the, the, the colors that you go to mourn in a, in a bit in a, in a bit kvarot. It doesn't always have to be black. But you cannot wear things that are overly bright like red, like solid red or solid pink, where if you walk, everyone, including the dogs with the clothes, are going to stop. You can wear colors, there's no problem. There's even a Gemara, there's even a, uh, a, a, a song that Shlomo Amelech wrote, Eshet Chayil. You know Eshet Chayil, you, you read it in a, uh, in a uh, Yom Shishi on Shabbat, right? Eshet Chayil, what does she do? She has a clothes she made for what? Purple. So you're allowed to wear colors. No problem wearing colors, but again, remember, you can't be overly getting, uh, getting too much attention where it's overly bright and things like that. Third thing is, is aside from it being loose-fitting and specific colors to refrain from, especially red and hot pink and things of that nature, is that it has to cover your body. If you have clothes that are black 
and a really loose fitting, but it only covers your finger, it's not patu. All of the requirements have to come. Not just one of them. No, no, I am two out of three. So for women, it has to cover your elbow at all times. Your elbow has to be covered, but it doesn't mean just your elbow and then over here there's a hole. Like some people, they wear these shirts where it covers the elbow all the way to the wrist, but but there's a hole already on the side. There's a hole on the side. It's a fashion statement to make holes. You buy the homeless people's clothes, but you give them a premium. You take it from the homeless people for free, you sell it to the public for premium. That's what happens. People buy clothes with holes in them. Clothes with holes in them are not, are not uh, kosher. So you have to buy clothes. It covers your elbows. It also covers your neckline. You cannot wear V-neck. It cannot expose your thigh. It has to cover the bottom of your knee. The bottom of your knee, which we had a short shear about this. The bottom of your knee by 10 centimeters. 10 centimeters is about 6 inches approximately. Some say 4 inches. Some say 6 inches. But this again, a reminder for all of those people that are just trying to play with the gray area. This is a minimum requirement. Not ideal. Not what you're supposed to do. Meaning, worst case scenario, you love the dress but it doesn't come any, any, uh, you know, any longer. You're only allowed to wear it if it covers the bottom of your knee after you sit down by six inches. After you sit down. Now, if it's before you sit down, then as soon as you sit down, guess what happens? Your whole knee is exposed. Or half a knee. So, it's important to know modesty is not something that you do just to get by. Like, for example, when you pray to Hashem, Hashem, please give me life. I have cancer. Please take the cancer and give me life back. That's, the, that's about the time. That's about the time you can see that Hashem, okay, Hashem, I'll do whatever you want. I'll wear the long dress. I'll wear a turban. I'll look like uh, Mustafa and his wife. I'll do whatever you want. I don't want cancer. But why wait for the problem? Why wait for the machala? You know how many people send me messages? They have the machala. They have the disease. Oh yeah, I'll do whatever Hashem wants. Yeah, he do whatever Hashem wants. Well, who says he's going to do what you want now? You should have done it before. So, please, B'not Israel, you have to always look like a queen. A queen walks around with a gown. Walks around with respect. Walks around like her father runs the world because your father does. Your father in heaven runs the world. She doesn't walk around like some putza, some, some immodest woman from the streets. She doesn't walk around like what 42nd Street used to look like in Manhattan. It used to be Prostitution Street. It was 42nd Street. Today, they shut down 42nd Street. So people say, yeah, but Hashem Giuliani, Giuliani used to be in New York, mayor in New York, he shut down 42nd Street, he, he ran it, went against crime. So everybody's like, yeah, Giuliani is great. What's the problem? All of Manhattan now is this. They shut down one street. Why? Because all of Manhattan don't do it for free. It's for free now. Abat Israel does not walk around like these people. 
She walks around like God runs the world. He's our father. And her father doesn't allow her to walk around like this. Why? It's lo kavod. The only one that's supposed to see her kavod, the only one that's supposed to see her is her husband. If she's not married, then her husband-to-be. That's modesty for women. As far as the kisurosh, no kisurosh, obviously we've talked about this a thousand times. Don't let anybody fool you. You only have to cover your hair with a mitpachat if you have a head. If you don't have a head, you're patul. If you don't have a head, Rav Nisim, again, Allah Shalom used to say, if you don't have a head, you don't have to cover your head. But if you have a head, you have to cover it. If you're a married woman. If you're not a married woman, then according to most opinions, you don't have to cover your head. There are opinions that say you still do. Like the Rambam. But most don't go by that. Let's just get the people that are supposed to do it according to all opinions to do it, and then we'll worry about the rest. So modesty for women, Abutai, Karim, is not that difficult. Just buy relatively bigger clothes, looser clothes, that covers your whole body, and that passes the test. What's the test? The test that every single woman in the world can take herself without even asking her friends. You know, because women, they're not like uh, guys when they, well, today's guys are a little feminine, so it's a little different. Uh, but in my generation, when men were still, were still masculine, um, men wouldn't really go shopping. And if they did, it's a five-minute process. You go five, ten minutes, you pick a shirt, all right, this will fit, gone. Today, the men, Shem Yachem, they're so feminine. You go to Beknesset, you see the jewelry on people, you think it's a woman, then you see it's a man. I saw a couple, mamash, I'm not joking. I see guys in a Beknesset, I see guys in a Beknesset, young guys, 20, 25, 30, 35, young guys. They wear a tennis bracelet. A tennis bracelet, if anyone knows a little bit about jewelry, it's this thin, tiny little bracelet that women wear. Tiny little thin bracelet or tiny little rings. Very adin, very like soft type of jewelry that belongs to women. Probably stole it from his girlfriend. But then you see another guy with this tennis bracelet and the ring and the little little thing here. And Mamash, Mamash, you think it's women. You think it's women. They have a, oh, oh, today they have a new thing. No one wears socks, by the way. Everybody wears these loafers. And some people have ankle bracelets. Ankle bracelets. What feminine generation we have today. The women, what do they have? I feel bad for women today. Who are you going to marry? Yourself? The guy the guys in front of the mirror are longer than the girl. The guy was late to the Biknes, two hours late to the Biknes. Why not? I had to look good, you know. For who? You're in the men's section. So anyway, in my generation, there were still masculine men in the world. I got my point. <laughs> Generation. Everybody is feminine. <laughs> so anyway, so a woman needs to make sure that she covers herself and she passes the test. That's what my point was. What's the test? woman goes to a store, she takes her girlfriend with her. This look good, this look good. If she keeps if she has a girlfriend that keeps saying she looks good, she stays a girlfriend. One time she says it doesn't look good, oh I hate her. What happened? No, you know, and then she said she didn't look good. 
But really, Behemet, everybody wants, what does it mean look good? Do I look sexy with this? Do I attract attention with this? So what's the test, Rabotai? If you look sexy in your clothes, not allowed. I'm not saying you have to look ugly. No one says you have to look ugly. In fact, you're not allowed to look ugly. You need to look okay. You need to look respectable, a respectable human being. But sexy, you're not allowed. You're not allowed to wear clothes that are sexy. Even if your rabbi likes to look at them, because he's a businessman, not a rabbi. Even if your girlfriend says it looks good, and even if your own husband says you should buy it, not allowed. So, to determine whether something is sexy or not is very simple. Just look at your own face when you look at yourself in the mirror and how you look at yourself. Are you making one of these faces where you're like puckering your lips? It's like, oh yeah, I look cute in this. You know, everybody, they take pictures today. Everybody thinks they're modeling for, for, for Calvin Klein. And they make the face. They pucker their face. Every woman... What happened? Why? Why? What, what do you have? What, what, you just ate, you ate lemon? Why? What's the, what, what's the problem? Why are you puckering your face? Why? Because you want to look sexy. Because you want to look at the woman in the magazine. A Jewish woman is not supposed to look at the woman in the magazine. A Jewish woman is the daughter of the king of kings. Remember that. If you remember you're the daughter of the king of kings, you're not going to be puckering your lips. If you're puckering your lips and you want to make sure that you look cute and that every curve shows, then you're not modest. Then you should stay home. That is modesty in five minutes. For women. For men, please. Please, if it doesn't fit you, don't wear it. This generation of feminine men Every single one of them wears this feminine jewelry, or they uh, wear, uh, which by the way is safik if you're even allowed to wear. Uh, as a man, it's safik if you're allowed to wear jewelry or not. Some say no, many say, uh, you know, most say no, some say okay. Because it's okay, a lot of other men wear it and so on. But the jewelry that men are starting to wear now, goal nefesh. You start to see these guys wearing these tennis bracelets and little pinky rings that are a little tiny, like they stole it from their daughter. It's, they, they wear feminine stuff. Not allowed to do stuff like this. The other thing is also the clothes are supposed to fit you. Not, it's not supposed to be so tight that I know exactly how your knee looks like and what the bone inside and how the meniscus inside the knee looks like supposed to be loose-fitting clothes. It's not supposed to be so tight that it looks like you just came off of the, uh, the, 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 the runway show with the woman that was wearing stuff like you also. You're not supposed to look like the celebrities on TV, Hashem Yachem. If you're trying to look like Lil Wayne and Kanye West and all of these losers in the world, you're not being a Jew. You're being a Goy. And that means that you're starting your day with a lie. Because you're saying to Hashem, Baruch Shelo Asani Goy. You're saying, thank you Hashem for not making me a Goy, but you're a liar. You're a filthy, despicable liar to Hashem. Because you just said, Baruch Shelo Asani Goy. Thank you Hashem for not making me a Goy, but you're wearing the Goy's clothes. Which, by the way, is not modest. You're not supposed to see every little curve of the man's body either. 
If you're going to a mikveh rabotai and you see a lot of people going there that are walking around naked, you're not allowed to go there. You yourself, of course you're not allowed to walk around like this. If you look at the lachot, I brought you guys, if anyone wants to see it, the lachot for the bathroom. Alachot for the bathroom. You're not even, you'd be surprised. You, honestly, the first time I read these alachot, I, I, I started doing chatanu avinu pashanu. Why? I said, Hashem Yerachem, I have to do tshuva. Why? Look what it says over here, Rabotai. It's Shukhan Aruch. It's not Yaron Uven. Shukhan Aruch, Ora Chaim, Alachot Anagat Adam Baboker, Siman Gimel. Anagat Betakise. This is the behavior of how you're supposed to behave in the bathroom when you're by yourself. Not in a public bathroom, not in a public mikveh, in a bathroom by yourself as a man. Kalva Chomer as a woman. Second alacha. He must be modest in the bathroom and he's not allowed to uncover himself until he is actually already sitting down on the chair, on the toilet. Meaning, if you're one of these people, you want it's your house or it's this, you just feel like walking around naked, like you're Adam Arishon. Every time you go to the bathroom, it's the same from the Torah. You have to cover himself until he's actually sitting down. He says, first of all, it shouldn't be, you know, some people like, oh, you want to go to the bathroom together? You know, like the girl, little girls used to do in the old days. Now it's little boys doing it also because I told you, we're feminine generation. You want to go to the bathroom together which we can talk? Not allowed to talk. Not allowed to talk in the bathroom. You're not allowed to go to the bathroom with somebody else. Not allowed. It's just not allowed. It's lotsanua. Lotsanua. No one should ever have an image of, their, of, of your private parts in their head ever. Even when a Jewish man, even, remember, we did alachot of when you're supposed to be intimate with your wife. The only time a person is supposed to be, uh, show himself in front, of, in front of somebody is his own wife, or own husband. Even then it's supposed to be dark. Kalvachomen when it's light. Kalvachomen means needless to say. Where you're allowed to touch, where you're not allowed to touch. The fourth alacha, Saif Dalit. He's not allowed to show himself more than a tefach. Meaning, Okay, so the man is only allowed to show when he's sitting down by himself. There's nobody else there. There's nobody else there. If somebody else is there, you're not to go to the bathroom. There's nobody else there. You and you. He's only allowed, he's sitting down, he's only allowed to have separation from his pants, his underwear, and so on, to his private parts of a tefach. Tefach is like this big, nothing. And the behind, tefachayim, a little bit space between you and the wall, you and uh, the back of the seat. That's it. For a woman, nothing is shown. Not even a tefach. Meaning that even if somehow somebody 
walked into the bathroom by accident. You forgot to lock the door. Or it's a public bathroom. Whatever it is. Somebody walked in, they would not see a single thing. Nothing. It's like they're just watching you. They, they saw the side of your uh, thigh or something. But not a chance in the world with a man or woman they saw your private part. Not a chance. This is how you're supposed to go to the bathroom. People don't have a clue. Why? No one teaches this stuff. We have to teach you how to go to the bathroom. Yes, we have to teach you how to go to the bathroom. Why? Because go up to Shammai and tell you, oh, you sinned every day, you went to the bathroom. So, Abutai, if you're not going to learn, you're not going to know. If you're not going to learn, you're not going to know. This is all part of tshuva. This is all part of tsniut. This is all part of modesty. A man has to be modest. He cannot walk around. There's many more, but um, you got the point. If you have to be modest in a bathroom when you're by yourself, needless to say, you have to be modest when you're in front of the public, when you're in front of people. You're not allowed to walk around with clothes that make no difference, no deciphering whether you're naked or not. We see exactly how you look. You're not allowed to walk around with clothes like this. You're not allowed to act like this. You have to talk like this. You have to understand, modesty is a prerequisite of Judaism. If you're not acting modest, you're not acting Jewish. And this is for men and for women. Now, if it's a woman, you could easily understand why. Because you see, the way that a man's mind works, it doesn't matter if the woman is 20 years old or 97, if the Yetzirah wants to test him, He's going to make the 97-year-old look even more attractive than the 20-year-old. You remember the story I told you guys recently about the 93-year-old and the 30-year-old. So the point is, is that a man's mind can make anything look shemeachem. So you can understand why a woman has to be modest. So you see, if she's causing men to sin, it's better off she's dead. How do I know it's better off she's dead? Because in the Gemara, there's a... Uh, I believe it's Rabbi Khalafta. Rabbi Khalafta. No, no, it's a different story. How do you know the story in my head? I just heard it. You were like, Rabbi Khalafta was talking about it. The lecture that just came out. Same story I'm about to say? Isn't about when they had daughters? There's a lot of daughters in the Gemara. <laughs> so, anyway, I think it's Rabbi Khalafta. He saw, maybe Rabbi Khalafta. Either way, he, on the way home, he uh, saw that there was a boy outside the fence of his house. Same story? Yeah. You have the lecture before I even got it. Didn't even hear, didn't even, didn't even hear, didn't even hear. So, same to what? So anyway, you see that there's a young boy um, outside of his fence, peeking through the holes of the fence. He says, what are you doing? He says, no, no, I'm just looking. There's a beautiful woman in there. And he sees his daughter. He goes inside the house. He says, My daughter, Biti, you're making the men sin. Go back to where you came from. Go back to the dust you came from. She died on the spot. His own daughter died on the spot. Why? It's better that a Bat Israel die than make other people sin. That's da Torah. You want to sue me, you want to yell at me, you want to blame me, do what you want, I didn't write it. Do what you want, I didn't write it. 
But that's da'at Torah. If you're letting your daughter outside of the house in an immodest way, you should know that she sins and you sin. If your wife goes out of the house and she's sinning, she's immodest, you sin and she sins. Just like a woman can get whatever she wants from her husband, if he's a good husband, a good husband can get anything he wants from his woman. If, if the husband worked on it hard enough, eventually his wife will become modest. Even though she didn't grow up like this, even though she doesn't like it, and so on and so forth. If he not only tells her what to do, but he compliments her when she buys modest clothes, or he goes and he buys her modest clothes, even if he has to go borrow money, but he makes sure to give her a whole new wardrobe of modest clothes, she'll wear it. So the husband can't say, no, my wife is not modest, it's not my fault. No, it's your fault. It's your fault. If you're not willing, if you're not willing to die for it, it's your fault. You remind me of Rabbi Nishim again, one time somebody came to Rabbi again, cried to him, said, my son, what am I going to do? We grew up religious, everything is good, now the son is Mechalel Shabbat. He said, it's your fault. The woman, religious woman, covers her hair and everything. No, 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 Kvodarav, we're religious, hey, everything is good. Please, Kvodarav, no, no, we keep, everything is good. The kid, the kid, my son, he went off the derech, he's now Mechalel Shabbat. He says, it's your fault. She says the story again, and he repeats it again. Why is it my fault, Kvodarav? I'm keeping. It's my son is off the derech. He said, you saw him? She says, so what? You saw me in Mechalel Shabbat? She said, yes. You saw him drive a car in Shabbat? She said, yes. He didn't die on the spot. He didn't lose consciousness. He didn't fall on the floor. It's your fault. If you didn't fall, if you didn't pass out when your son was driving on Shabbat, you saw with your own eyes, that means Shabbat is not life or death for you. If it was life or death for you, you'd pass out. That means you didn't tell him when he was a kid and still under your control that it's life or death to keep Shabbat. Same thing with modesty. Same thing with all of the Torah laws. We're in Asaraya Met Shuvah. We're in the 10 days of Shuvah. We kept telling Hashem, Hashem, judge us with the tzaddikim, judge us with the nevonim, judge us with the righteous, with the, with the meritorious, with all the great ones. What merit? Wear some clothes as a beginning. Let's start. Why are we saying this? Because Hashem, we're going to do tshuva. Tshuva, Rabotai, starts with getting ourselves to like that we're Jewish. Getting ourselves to have some Jewish pride. If you're not proud of being a Jew, but a Jew by the definition of the Torah, not a Jew by the definition of the kibbutz, or a Jew by the definition of the Zionists, or a Jew by the definition of modern society, a Jew by the definition of the Torah that's modest, that's kind, that learns Torah every day, if you don't have that, then you're not proud enough. So modesty, Rabotai, is for both for men and for women. Men have to know that they have to act modestly. Women have to act modestly. Sometimes you see women walking around with the kisurosh, with the mitpachat, and a miniskirt. Or she's walking around with modest clothes, but there's filth coming out of her mouth. She talks like a truck driver. She curses her kid, she curses her husband, she curses the neighbor, she curses the dish, she curses everyone. She talks like Mamash, she just came out of a uh, garbage dump. 
Modesty is behavior as well as clothing. Of course, the clothing is supposed to be symbolic of what the behavior is, but not always. We've seen too many examples of people that look modest, but unfortunately they're the farthest thing from it. So that's why it's important to know that if you see somebody that looks a certain way, she looks modest, he looks modest, but they don't act modest because they still have filthy minds. Don't get mad at Hashem. It's not His fault. Don't get mad at the Torah. It's not the Torah's fault. Torah never said it's allowed. Just remember, some people wear a costume once a year on Purim. Some people wear a costume all year round. They want to pretend like they're modest on the outside so they could trap you because of the immodesty inside. It's not the Torah's fault. It's not Hashem's fault. It's the Yetzirah that they have that they cannot control because they follow every one of their desires. So, Nasaraya Metshuva, we're supposed to first and foremost understand rule number one. What just happened here? We had Rosh Hashanah, Yom Adin, Judgment Day, but then automatically, even if you prayed your heart out, even if you cried, like the Arizal says you're supposed to cry in Rosh Hashanah. Even if you cried, because Judgment Day, still you all have to fast on Yom Kippur and cry again. Why? Who said your tshuva is accepted? So the Judgment Day really, for all of mankind, is on Rosh Hashanah. But then we have the appeal. The appeal is on Yom Kippur. This is if you ever went to court and you lost the case and you want a retrial based on new information, maybe even based on a new judge that has clearer eyes and not shades and wool over his eyes. You want a different judge, you want a higher court, and so on and so forth. You file an appeal. Where do they get this rule in modern society? They got it from the Torah. If you remember, Yitro, Jethro, was the one that told Moshe Rabbeinu, I have an idea for you. What? Have court system. Don't be the only judge. Have levels. This came from a convert. One of the most important converts that ever lived, named Yitro who told Moshe Rabbeinu, have a court system. So that court system gives us the ability to have an appeal, both in the civil world as well in the Torah world. That appeal is Yom Kippur.
But you can't just show up to Yom Kippur with the same information. You can't just file an appeal with the same case. You have to bring something new to the table. That's when we have the 10 days of tshuva. During the 10 days of tshuva, a person has to take something on themselves, not already, not only what, what they said they're going to do on Rosh Hashanah, in order for Hashem to give them all they want, especially life, for another year, but also to take something on themselves and do it seriously already starting right away. During those 10 days of tshuva, start learning more, start being more modest, start being more kosher person, and so on and so forth. So when you show up to the appeal, you're showing up as a different person. In Tehilim, David HaMelech tells Hashem, they're all liars, they're liars. All those prosecutors against me are liars. So the sages ask, who is he talking about liars? He's talking about the angels. Angels have ability to lie? Angels? What, 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 what does the angel get out of lying about David HaMelech? Remember, we said this a few weeks ago. Every time, the Gemara says, every time a person makes a mitzvah, they make a good angel. They make avira, make a bad angel. A.K.A. demon. Now, those angels are their own creation. Those angels will either fight for them or fight against them. When they go up to Shemaim, there's not going to be, did you do it, did you not do it? It's going to be an angel saying, I am sin number two that he committed on such and such day when he ate pork. I am sin number three that he committed when he looked at the woman while he was eating pork. I am sin number four that uh, was a Jew from the outside that saw him. Eating pork was Chilul Hashem. And sin number 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, Hashem Echem. So the sins show up, and then the sins are the ones that rip the person apart. All those angels. So now, David HaMelech says to Hashem, all of those sins, they're saying I sinned, I didn't, they're liars. Why? Because I already did tshuva. I did tshuva, so what they're saying is they're saying something about who I used to be. Who I used to be before I did tshuva for my sin. It's not that they're lying about a sin. They're honest about the sin. The sin existed, but I did tshuva. That they're not saying I did tshuva. So I'm saying I did tshuva. That's the 10 days of tshuva. 10 days of tshuva is when you're supposed to do tshuva. Now what's tshuva though? What's tshuva? Ben Bagbag, Omer, Afochba veAfochba dekulaba. Uba techeze vesivu bleba, umina lotazua, shen la mida tova emena. Ben Hehe Omer, lefum tsara agra. This is all in Aramaic, so if you didn't understand, don't feel bad. I didn't either. Ben Bagbag says, this is the name of a person, one of the Tanaim. His uh, full name was Yohanan ben Bagbag. So ben Bagbag says, delve into it, meaning the Torah. Delve into the Torah and continue to delve into it. Meaning study it and study it. Keep going and going and going. Why? 
Everything is in it. Look deeply into it. Grow old and gray over it. Do not stir from it. For you can have no better portion than it. And Ben Heihei says, another person, but some say, the Rashba says it's actually the same person. Ben Heihei says, the reward is in proportion to the exertion. Whatever you get as a reward is based on how much energy you put into it. How much energy you put into it. This is a Mishnah that you can talk about for a year straight. We'll try to talk, we'll keep it to at least a couple of shulim. If we don't finish today. There's a lot of material, so let's try. First and foremost, Yohanan ben Bagbag, it's called Bagbag. And he, uh, he was one of the Tanaim. And uh, they say the reason why he's not called uh, Rav ben Bagbag, or Rabbi Yochanan ben Bagbag, is because he died young, like Ben Zoma that we heard before, and he never got the title of Rabbi. But there is actually a, uh, a few other places that call him uh, Rabbi. Whether he got the smicha or he didn't get the smicha, that doesn't really make a difference. But uh, sometimes you see that the names are uh, there because they just uh, they were huge in Torah but never officially got the smicha. Sometimes uh, it's because it's symbolic that they're actually even bigger than the rabbi. Because we learned before that there are certain people that are not named by, uh, there's a degrees, there's uh, rabbi, there's uh, rav, there's rabban, and there's the name. The name is the highest. So for example, Aaron, Aaron Akoin, Avram Avinu, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Shmuel Anavi, all of these people, Eliyahu Anavi, Elisha Anavi, they're not rabbi. They were rabbis per se, as far as they were teachers, but they weren't called by the title of rabbi. So anyway, some Midrash Shmuel quotes the Rashbam saying that both Ben Bagbag and Ben Heihei, both of the people that are mentioned here, are two different people. Some say it's the same person. Some say it's two different people. But they're mentioned together because both of them were descendants of converts. Both of them were the sons of converts. And this is not the first, second, third, or tenth time even that we hear some of the most critical laws in the Torah, some of the most critical lessons from the Torah coming from righteous converts. The Torah is full of them. Am Yisrael is full of converts. Am Yisrael is a convert nation. Who is the original convert? Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu and Sarai Menu. So that's actually what the uh, Midrash Shmuel says, is that's how we, uh, these names came about. Bagbag means, it's, uh, it's Rashet Tevot, Bet Gimel, Bet Gimel. Bet is Ben, Gimel, Giyor. So Bag, the first one is the son of convert, son of convert, son of convert male, son of convert female, Giyorit. Ben Giyor, Ben Giyorit. So, Yohanan ben Bagbag always wanted to make sure that people knew he's a convert. Why? Because if you know Torah, you should be proud to be a convert. If you don't know Torah, then you should probably go back to your religion and don't be a Jew. If you're going to be a, one of these people 
that's going to complain about the Torah, then why did you convert? Remember, I told you guys about this article somebody wrote, oh, all these people, black people, they're, uh, they're not being welcomed. Uh, they converted to Judaism, but they're not being welcomed by the uh, Orthodox people. I took a second look at that article after I told you guys what I told you. And I saw that half the people that he mentioned as witnesses, as so-called victims, victims of Jewish society that uh, are not welcoming them, half of them are not even converts. Half of them are psulim, half of them are reformed, conservative. Some of them are not, they didn't even convert yet, they wanted to convert. There's maybe a couple of them that are actually convert that are being persecuted against, but that's because they're converting for the wrong reason. Like Betzalel Tzadik says, what do you say? They converted for social status. They converted because it's cool to be a Jew. It's so cool to be a Jew, even the Christian wants to be one. If you're going to convert because you have social status, do yourself a favor, don't convert. First of all, it's not easy. It's very difficult to be a Jew. Second of all, it's even more difficult if you don't know what it is. Because then all of the mitzvot, all of the mitzvot, are suffering to you. Who wants to sleep in a sukkah in 900 degrees weather outside? Who wants to only eat kosher meat? There's so much delicious food that's not kosher. Who wants to wash their eyes? Who wants to do all these laws if you don't have to? Why are you going to convert? For what? So you can wear black and white? You can wear black and white without converting. What? So you can cover your hair? Cover your hair without converting. Why are you converting for? We think if you convert... People in Mamash are so stupid today. It's, 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 it's a surprise they're still classified as humans. No, Jewish people are rich. So what do you think? If you convert, they give you a million bucks at the bed dean? What do you think? Because you convert, you're going to get the job? If anything, you're not going to get the job. You're part of the persecuted people for 4,000 years. You think you're going to be the first one to be persecuted? We're the best at it. We're the best at being persecuted. Welcome to the club. If you don't enjoy persecution, don't be a Jew. It's one of our signs. If you haven't been persecuted against, you have to go do conversion again, maybe. I'm not sure if it's kashel. Ben Bagbag. Ben Bagbag was proud to be a Jew, but why didn't he just say Ben Bagbag the convert? Why didn't he just say Yohanan the convert? Because in those days, it wasn't like today where it's socially acceptable to be a convert or socially acceptable to be a Jew. In those days, if the Roman knew that you converted from their falsianity or their idolatry of other kinds and you became a Jew, they kill you on the spot. So you had to tell people, I'm proud to be a Jew, but at the same token, I'm not a fool. I can't let the goyim know that I converted. Why? Because they kill me on the spot. There's no mitzvah to die. There's no mitzvah to die for no reason. So I want you to know I'm a convert. But I don't want the goyim to know. Ben Hehe also had similar similar secret in his name. Ben Hehe is son of Hey, son of Hey. What's Hey? Hey is the letter of the alphabet. It's the fifth letter of the alphabet. Some say five symbolizing that when he converted, he accepted the five books of Moses. Unlike the Goim that called the Old Testament, like it's old news that we don't use anymore. The Jews know that the Old Testament is the Torah, it's the only thing we use. So when you're a convert, you accept the entire 
Reading Torah. So why is it Ben Hey Hey Ben Hey Hey? Why is it Hey Hey? It's two Hey's. Why Hey Hey? One Torah. It's five five books of Moses because there's written Torah and there's oral Torah. Ben Hey Hey had Torah inside his name. Inside his name he had Torah. One more. He said also who else has Hey in their name? He says my father and my mother Avraham and Sarah. How did they become Jews? How did they become the the, the, the the beginning of Judaism? Oh, Hashem added a hey. Hashem added a hey into their name. Hashem added a hey to their name. I have two A's in my name. For Abba and for Ima. For Abba and for Ima. This is a person that's proud to be a Jew. This is a person that's proud to be a Jew. Why? He wants to publicize to the whole world, my father, he's the king of kings. Who's your father? Who the, the, the statue you just bought from Chinatown? Who? My father's the king of kings. That's the best thing in the world. And he walks around and he acts and she acts like our father's the king of kings. I'm representing that. So you see that these people were special as far as their Jewish pride. But what's the, who says that they have any Torah knowledge? You look at the Gemara Maseret Kiddushin. Rabbi Yehuda says, there's a bunch of questions between Ben Bagbag and Rabbi Yehuda. Bunch of questions, back and forth, back and forth. Rabbi Yehuda says to him, I know you know the whole Torah. One of the Tanaim, one of the head five students of Rabbi Akiva, the whole Torah, Shem Echem, almost ended when Hashem punished the students of Rabbi Akiva. 24,000 students died in a matter of a month and a half. You couldn't find a rabbi. You couldn't find a mashkiach. You couldn't find anything. You wanted a mashkiach? There's no mashkiach. You wanted a rabbi to teach? No rabbi to teach. Nothing. All the biggest rabbis in the world died. There was no like mini rabbi. It's either you're able to revive the dead or you're not a rabbi. Like that. Not like today, everybody that has black and white is a rabbi. Black and white in the beard is a rabbi. Especially if he's groomed. In those days, you can revive the dead, you're a rabbi. You can't revive the dead, you can't be a rabbi. So now 24,000 students, Hashem Yachem, 24,000 Rav Ovadios, 24,000 Rav El Yashiv, 24,000 the Stipe Legaon, the Chazon Ish, the Ben Ish Chai, the Chavetz Chaim, 24,000 every day, Hashem Yachem, 24,000 dying a month and a half. There's no rabbis in the world. Rabbi Akiva is the only one left. What am I going to do? He says, I have to go find, start all over again. Me, he commit suicide. 44,000 students died. I'm going to start all over again. You know how hard it was to build the first 24,000? Hashem, I did it. You broke it. Ah, chalas, I'm finished. I'll be the only rabbi. Why kill 24,000 students? Me, I see it. One of you guys, don't chop the shield. I say already, well, no one wants to come to my shield anymore. Imagine 24,000 students. He goes and he looks. Why? Torah has to continue. Torah has to continue. I have to go find new ones. He has five new students. Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Meir Baranes, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Yehuda. You see, these people are what the entire oral Torah that we have today is from them. We don't have the oral, the oral Torah of the 24,000 students. We don't have the Torah of Mount Sinai. We have the five books of Moses. But the oral Torah they had at Mount Sinai, we don't have. We have what those five students started again. So we have a tiny portion of what's really available, even to us. 
So now Rabbi Yehuda, Kodesh Kodeshim, there are millions of books, millions of books, Jewish books in the world today, millions. And it still doesn't come to 1% of the Torah. All came from these five students. One of those students, Rabbi Yehuda, says to Ben Bagbag, he says to him, not he says to him, he's, he says to Ben Bagbag, Rabbi Yehuda says to Ben Bagbag, I know you know the entire Torah. You need, a better, you, need the, you need any better certification than that. You need any kosher stamp than that. The one that the whole Torah comes from, he says, I know you know the entire thing. And you know everything. You cover the entire Torah, Ben Bagbag. There's no better compliment than that. And it's not like this generation, you have to give people compliment every five seconds just so you can stay friends. It's real. It's real enough for it to be included as part of our oral Torah so we know who we're dealing with. So now this Ben Bagbag has the right to say if one of the forefathers of our oral Torah, Rabbi Uda says, Ben Bagbag knows the entire Torah. Now we have to know, okay, what does he have to say? He has the right to speak now, meaning we have to learn everything he says. If he just says, no, Ben Bagbag is a nice convert. He converted to Chabad over there. They like him over there. He comes and he helps the Bet Knesset. He brings cookies once or twice a week. Okay, he's a nice guy. Doesn't necessarily mean we have to listen to him. But if they say in the Mishnah, in the Old Torah, he knows the entire Torah. Ooh, I need to listen to everything he says. And what does he say out of all the things in the world that they picked for him to say? What does he say? He says, He says, Delve into the Torah, he tells us. Delve into the Torah, he says again. He repeats it. For everything is in it. What does it mean, delve into the Torah? Delve into the Torah. What does it mean, delve into the Torah? A person that was fortunate enough to learn Torah knows that every time you look into the Torah, it doesn't matter how many times you've looked at it whether it's the five books of Moses or it's one of the Sfarim HaKadoshim from the Tzadikim or the Gemara or the Mishnayot or the Rambam or the Shuchan Aruch, any part of the Torah, written or oral Torah, doesn't matter how many times you look at it, you're always going to have a new idea. You're always going to have a new perspective, a new perception of what just happened here. Ben Bagbag says, keep going, you'll find more. Keep going, you'll find more. Keep, but I went already 50 times. 51 is better. You go 51, okay, again. Okay, again. How many times? Forever. It always, but before, before I, uh, Hashem opened my eyes, it boggled my mind. How could you read the same book over and over again? You read the book already, enough. Like I remember I used to be a young kid, or even as an adult, I used to read these books, Stephen King books and other books. Big books, 500, 1,000 page books, tiny little letters about all types of stories and so on. Or you watch a movie, the book is usually better than the movie, usually problem today is they don't know how to write or they don't know how to make movies. There's no original. It's the same thing over and over again. Just a new face. They made Jurassic Park movie ten times already. 
What, you can't come up with a new creature, a new a new monster? Superheroes, a hundred years already. Superheroes, the same people. Same people. Same story, just a new person wanted to kill you. No imagination whatsoever. They have an imagination for the original idea. After that, everyone dies. Not just the characters, also the people that are creative. They also die. They go on pension. But I would read these books, but after you read it once, after you watched the movie once, that's it, khalas, finished. You're not going to watch the movie again. Especially if it's a really, really creative movie. The ones that you would watch many times are usually the ones that are not creative. They're more like real life. Because that stuff makes you think more times. But the stuff that's really creative, the Transformers and the superheroes and the X-Men, that you watch once, maybe twice, that's it, finished. It's it's, 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 It's the same thing again. If it's a book, for sure you're not reading it a second time. You're definitely not reading a thousand page book twice. Never. Why? Enough. I read it. I know already everything that's in it. What am I going to get? He dies again? I know already the ending. I know he dies at the end. I know the dog bites him. I know the, the snake eats him. I, I know already. Finish. What am I going to be? Oh, well, it's not all. Oh, I know the snake. Hey, idiot. Move out of the way. The snake's coming. Ah, again he didn't move. Again he didn't move. Reminds me of a story. One time a uh, old Moroccan woman, she's sitting down in the Beknesset and the Rav is telling a story of a uh, Yosef Tzadik. How his brothers caught him, threw him into the hole. And then they sold him for a pair of shoes, for the value of a pair of shoes. Then he went to Potiphar. And he worked for Potiphar, but he fell for, you know, over there, the, the, his wife wanted to be with him, he didn't want to be with her, and he, unfortunately for him at the time, fell in the hands of the Goim, where they put him in jail because of that, because of a story that she made up. So you see, this old Moroccan woman, listening to this story, and she's crying, oh, kapara alecha Yosef, what did they do to you? They says over here, the rabbi said you're such a good person, kapara alecha, and she's crying, and the rabbi feels strong. He's like, wow, my lecture's so good. My lecture's so good. He sees the old woman crying. He sees the, he sees somebody crying. Only a few times I saw women crying. Some people cry in my shio. I tell you, for me, it's like, wow, I'm so good. And then, then I make a mistake, so Hashem brings me back to the world. But anyway, you see somebody crying in your lecture, there's no bigger high than that. It's like, wow, I'm touching their heart. Unless they just read their wife is leaving them or something on a text message. And then it's, that's why they're probably crying, not because of me. But other than that, maybe they're crying because of the story you said. You feel good about yourself. So this uh, this rabbi feels good about himself. He sees this old 90-year-old Moroccan woman crying about Yosef HaTzadik. Kapa Yosef. What did they do to you? you you're, you're ta'ol. You're good. You're tzadik. You're office of a tzadik. Oh, what did they do to you? And the rabbi goes home and he tells the rabbanit, what a shiur I gave this year, what a shiur. The crowd was crying. Rabbanit said, who? The crowd was crying? He goes, yeah, yeah, you know, the woman, the, the, this woman, oh, she was crying. Wow. A year later, we get to see parasha. He starts telling the story of Yosef HaTzadik again. And this time he sees the same Moroccan woman. 
she's getting upset. She's starting, he's starting to say, no, the brothers, they took Yosef, they threw him in a hole. No, Yosef, get out of the way, get out of the way, Yosef. He doesn't understand what's going on. So he continues with the story, and they sold him. No, Yosef, again, you let them, you should run away, you should run away. By the time they threw him to jail, Magia lecha Yosef, I told you to move. Magia, you deserve it, Yosef, I told you it's going to happen. <laughs> he, he didn't realize, the rabbi didn't realize, she took the story seriously, like it was happening right now. He's an old woman. Tmima, Tmima. So, it wasn't, it wasn't him. It was the story. It was the Torah. So anyway, every time you look in the Torah, you're going to find something new. You're going to find a new rule. You're going to find new understanding. And a thorough and a constant review of the Torah, you'll discover new facets of the Torah every single time you study it, Rashi says. If Rashi says that every time you study the Torah, you're going to find something new. Imagine how many things we can... If he says every time you see it, it's something new. Just imagine on us. But also sometimes it's not just finding something new, it's also clarifying something that until this point we did not understand. Something that we thought we understood. Something that to us was as good as Gold. We thought we were sure we knew what it was. One day you read something and your whole world is upside down. You just realize, I thought I did tshuva, Hashem Yachem, I'm still not even in the beginning. Now if you're Ishemet, if you're Ishaemet, if you're looking for the truth, this is motivating. Why? You're seeing, look, Hashem has mercy on me. He sees I want good, so He's going to unfold unfold the truth and show it to me little by little as I can handle it. If you're looking for excuses, this is going to nag you out. Why? It's like, I thought I did tshuva and I just realized I haven't even started. I hope all of you are in Shemit. Only you know that. You look like all real people. Baruch Hashem, you've been coming for a long time. But if you're not real, this is one of those times you shouldn't listen. It has nothing to do with punishment. It's not scary. As far as punishment, as far as gory things. But some of the things you may hear, you probably never heard before. Ben Bagbag over here says, you're going to have to understand that in order to be at a level of having da Torah, having the mindset of Torah, you're going to have to continue going and delving into the Torah, even into the things that you've heard before, even into the things that you've read before, even into the things that you thought for sure you knew, for sure you knew. Because you will find out that the more you look into them, the closer you're eventually going to get to the truth. You're not at the truth yet. And he prescribes for a person to already come to terms with the fact that Torah study is lifelong. It's not something you do on the side. It's not something you do in the beginning and then later on you cool off. It's a lifelong commitment. You start today and you never finish. You go to a book, you get another book, and another book, and another book. And if you don't have a book, you read the same book again. 
And you have to continue going into the same material over and over again because eventually you'll have the merit to inherit knowledge. And I say inherit knowledge and not get acquire knowledge because in reality at the end it's only Hashem that's going to give you the knowledge. Because of your effort and not because you're so smart. Now the reason why Ben Bagbag says you have to delve into it and he mentions it twice is because he's trying to emphasize the crucial importance that every Jew needs to be linked to a steady and vibrant Torah study. Meaning that he has to study every single day. It's halacha and Shulchan Aruch that every Jew has to make time for the Torah. Every Jew has to make time to learn Torah every day. Now some Jews, they want to learn whenever it's convenient for them. They want to learn only in the morning, but they don't want to learn at night. They want to learn only on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, but not on Monday, not Monday, Thursday, Friday, and other days. That means that they haven't even begun yet. Because Torah is not one of those things, it's not a book. You're not studying it for the sake of knowledge. You're studying it for the sake of life. It's two different things. If you're studying for miktsoa, you're studying for, uh, let's say, for a profession, that you're studying for the purpose of, uh, you know, your uh, profession to make money. So you need knowledge. You need knowledge about certain type of profession, to be an accountant, to be a lawyer, to be a doctor, to be whatever it is that you want to be as far as a profession. So you need to acquire knowledge in order to do something that you want to do. When you learn Torah, it's not for the purpose of acquiring knowledge. It's for the purpose of life. Meaning, you need to learn how to live. Not only live here, but live eternally. So, in Parashat Nitzavim, when Hashem Yitbarach told us about the mitzvah of tshuva, the Rambam gave us a definition. And a definition is very easily misconstrued. Most people think that they know what tshuva is. But if you read and you delve into it more than one time, you start seeing it doesn't make any sense. So if you go down on the internet, you say, what's definition? Define, you go to Google, Rabbi Google, tshuva, define tshuva. Most likely, you're going to have Eish and Chabad and other Jewish, uh, or Sameach, and other Jewish sites show you what the Rambam wrote. What did he write? He wrote what's written in Perik, uh, Perik Sheni, in the second Perik of Ilchot Tshuva. What's Tshuva? And I'll read it to you. What is Tshuva? In the first Perik, it says, Ezoi Tshuva Gmura. What's a, what constitutes a complete Tshuva? This is the first Alakha in the second chapter of Ilchot Tshuva. What is the complete Tshuva? A person who confronts the same situation in which he sinned, when he has the potential to commit the sin again, and nevertheless, he abstains and does not commit it because his tshuva alone, and not because of fear or a lack of strength. So he has an opportunity to sin again. And he doesn't sin. That's complete tshuva as far as the process. But what is this tshuva though? That tells us about the process of how to test it, how to put something to the test. For example, when they, before they release a product into the market, 
They put it onto tests, onto pressure tests. So before they release the car into the market, they're going to let the public know how does this car react if we smash it into the wall at 75 miles per hour. Before we put a price tag on the car and on the airbags and on everything else, we need to know how it's going to react under pressure. Not just how it's going to look, but how it's going to act under pressure. One of the reasons that makes diamonds, for example, very marketable to people is because it's the strongest stone. You need a laser in order to take apart, break a, 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 a diamond. Whereas other stones, you take a hammer, you smash it, they break. Under pressure is when you see whether it's a diamond, that's a real diamond, or a cubic zirconium. Because a cubic zirconium, even though sometimes it looks better than a diamond, you take a hammer and you smash it and it breaks like glass. It is glass. But a diamond, you could take ten hammers, it won't do anything. So, the first halakha that the Rambam teaches us is that what is this tshuva? Like, how do you know if you've even done tshuva as far as the process? You have to put it under pressure. Meaning, you have an opportunity to make the same sin. And you don't do it. Now, how do you get to this tshuva? How do you get to that? How do you get to this, to hold under the pressure? So he goes to the second halakha. Umayi tshuva. What is this tshuva? What constitute actual tshuva? Now, most people can ask him, what's tshuva? What are they going to tell you? Oh, you keep Shabbat. You start becoming modest. You don't go to the club anymore. You go to Shiu Torah once in a while. That's Shuva. You eat kosher. That's Shuva, no? That's Shuva. Anybody else can add anything more to my definition of Shuva? No? Amos? Huh? Go to Uman's Shuva? I don't think so. Maybe, maybe it's Sheila, not Shuva. No, 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 come on, no, give me tshuva, give me Bemet, real answers. Learn Torah, okay, learn Torah is tshuva, upset them. Regret what you did, okay, so, you read it, okay, regret, no? Learn Musar every day, okay, so we're learning, we're regretting, we're doing mitzvot, okay, so we have some parts of this, a four-step process, the Rambam says. The sinner should abandon his sins, the Rambam says. Ya'azov achotechet o. The sinner should abandon his sins and remove them from his thoughts, resolving in his heart to never committing them again. As the prophet Isaiah says, may the wicked abandon their ways. And similarly, he has to regret. Third step is he has to regret. As the prophet Jeremiah said, after I returned, I regretted. After I did tshuva, I regretted. And he must reach the level where he who knows the hidden, meaning Hashem Barach, can testify for him concerning that he will never return to the sin again. As the prophet Hosea says, we will no longer say to the work of our hands, you are our gods. And he must verbally confess and state that these matters which he resolved in his heart. So to simplify everything I just said, a person needs to do a few things. What's tshuva? First step, the sinner stops sinning. Obviously, if you not stop sinning, 
are we talking about here? You have to stop. Believe it or not, as obvious as this is, this is the most difficult part for people to sometimes understand. When they contact me and they tell me about one of their horrible sins that they've done, that they're addicted to, whether they're addicted to being with different people all the time, or homosexuality, or wasting seed, any of these giloy arayot type of sins that are addictive, or money, other types of forms of avodah zarah, they ask me, how do I do tshuva for this? How much do I need to donate? I said, don't donate anything yet, just stop first. Stop doing what you're doing. Oh, it's hard for me. Oh, it's hard for you. You have to, you have to stop. You have to stop. That's the beginning. Second, so he has to stop and he has to remove the thoughts of it from his mind. The second is he has to resolve in his heart to not repeat it. Once he stopped, he has to say to himself, I'm not going back. I'm not going back with her. I'm not going back with him. They're not, they're forbidden to me. She's forbidden to me. He's forbidden to me. Not allowed. Not only you stop seeing him, not only you stop seeing her, you're not going back. You promise? I'm not going back. You don't have to be uh, tzaddik arbe and make a nedir. Don't make a nedir. Don't do anybody any favors. Just say, I'm not going back. You're not supposed to make a nedir on th- things that you're not allowed to do anyway. Like people says, oh, I make a nedir that I'm going to keep Shabbat. That's not a nedir, that you're just a fool. You have to keep Shabbat with or without the nedir. Violating the Shabbat is much worse than violating the nedir. Only, only times you make a nedir, which even if you're ever going to do it, is if it's for something you're not obligated to do. But should. So you stop sinning, you remove the thoughts from your, from your mind, and then you commit, step two is to commit not to repeat it. What's step number three? Step number three is regret it. Regret the past. Regret that you made the sin. And then finally, you have to get to such a level that Hashem Barach, that knows the future, can testify for you on a beddin of Shemaim. He, he's never going to go back to her again. He, he's never going to waste seed again. He, tzaddik. He's tshuva. Hashem, he knows the future. In reality, how many times we see people, they did tshuva 20 years, then they go back. They make the sin again. So why? Does that mean they never did tshuva? Maybe yes, maybe no. How do we find out? First, we have to understand something. There's a kushya here. There's a very big difficulty here in what happened. Something doesn't make sense. Something doesn't make sense if you don't understand the Gemara in Masechet Yoma on page 87. Where it says... First time a person sins, he simply didn't consider the onish, the punishment. By the second time he sinned, it became allowed to him, became permissible to him. What does that have to do with this? If you look at the order here, with the exception of the last one that Hashem has to testify for you, you see there's something out of order. Why? It says, Stop sinning. Remove the thoughts from your head. Stop sinning, remove the thoughts from your head. And then, say you're not going to do it again. And only then regret it. 
this is a little strange. The Holy Sled says this is a little strange. Doesn't make any sense. Why? Technically, if you're going to stop doing it, why are you going to stop doing it? Because you regret it. So the first thing should be, I regret it. I can't believe I'm with her. I can't believe I'm with him. I can't believe I ate this. I can't believe I ate that. I can't believe I wore those clothes. I can't believe I didn't wear clothes. Whatever it is that you regret, and then you do tshuva. No, Rambam says it's not it. It's not it. That's not the order. First, stop. Then say you're not going to do it again. Then you're going to regret it. Why? How, how could this be? Abutai. The Gemara in Masechet Yoma, page 87a, says something extraordinary, says something scary, says something I just told you, but maybe you didn't get it. It says that when a person makes a sin the first time, when he makes a sin the first time, Avar Adam Avera, Veshanaba, Neset Lo Keeter. The Gemaraim Masechet Yomah says that when a person commits a sin, and then he repeats it, it becomes permissible in his eyes. What does it mean it becomes permissible in his eyes? The Holy Israel explains, the first time you made a sin, first time you made a sin, it's simply because you didn't take into account that they're going to burn you in the genome and they're going to rip you into 50 million pieces. You didn't think about that. You didn't think about the fact that you just went against the Melech Malchei Amlachim Befarestia. You just went against the king of kings that watches all, that hears all, that knows all. You went against them in public. You didn't think about that because you were too busy, too busy imagining your desire come true. Too busy tasting the food that you haven't eaten yet. Too busy imagining what it's like to be with the person you're not allowed to be with. Imagining how does it feel like to have all of this illegal money. You already are fantasizing your desire. It became real to you. You forgot about Hashem. You didn't think about, oh, Hashem has Gan Eden and Genom. You didn't think about that. No one ever told you. Your mommy didn't teach you about Genom. Your father didn't teach you about Genom. She didn't think about it when you wanted to fulfill your desire. But that's not the problem. The problem really starts the second time. The second time you steal money again. The second time is you with a person that you're not allowed to be with. The second time you make the sin. Why? First time it's because you completely forgot, ignored, or just completely miscalculated anything to do with punishment. By the second time you did it, it's because in your eyes it's allowed. Why is it allowed? Nothing happened. Look, I drove on Shabbat, nothing happened. Look, I stole money, nothing happened. Look, I was with her, him, and everybody else in between, nothing happened. Nothing happened. The sin became like a mitzvah. The sin became permissible in your eyes. Now, there's nothing wrong with it. You don't feel like there's anything wrong with driving on Shabbat, 
with to, taking money, with no feeling there's anything wrong with eating this food, being with the girl. You feel there's nothing wrong with it. So how do you how do you actually make tshuva? You tell people, listen, you have to stop driving on Shabbat. You have to stop eating non-kosher. You have to stop doing this, you stop doing that. So how do people do tshuva if they think it's allowed? How do you do tshuva? Because Ayetzirah says, listen, it's allowed. But just don't do it because you want to be a tzaddik. It's allowed. It's allowed to eat taref. It's allowed to steal. It's allowed to drive on Shabbat. It's allowed. You look how many times you did. Nothing happened. It's allowed to do it. But you should be a tzaddik. Maybe it's better for you. You should, you should, you should not drive. Maybe it's better for you. In reality, when you first start doing tshuva, you feel, in reality, if anyone here does cheshbon nefesh, in reality, you feel you're doing something, you're stopping yourself from not eating certain food, even though it's allowed to eat it. You're not driving on Shabbat, even though you're allowed to drive on Shabbat. Because in your mind, nothing happened when I drove on Shabbat. So when a person starts doing tshuva, psychologically it's because of their ego, not because they're such tzaddikim. I'm allowed to drive on Shabbat, but I'm not going to drive. Why? I want to be like Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, people like me, we have a bigger role in the world. We have a bigger role in the world. I want to be like Moshe Rabbeinu. Also, I want Hashem to give me more panasah. He, look, He gave me 20 million without keeping Shabbat. Imagine how much He's going to give me when I keep Shabbat. Why? You don't think there's anything wrong with not keeping Shabbat. You don't think there's anything wrong with in taref. It's just that it's better if you do it. It's better if now you keep Shabbat. It's better now if you are modest. It's, be- it's not that it's not allowed. It's that if you do it, then you're even better. It's like somebody works. And it's like, listen, there's certain people who work for you. I had a lot of people work for me over the years, Baruch Hashem. And it's a wonderful, wonderful nightmare. To have people work for you. Wonderful. Why? Everyone, you have their personality. Every single person, you have their personality. Everybody has this request, that request. Everybody has requests. It's like when you are balabait, you're also a slave at the same time. Why? Because you have to deal with personalities. Everybody wants this, everybody wants that. Everybody has different ones. So, the problem is, is that some people, you have, they're like workhorses. Once in a blue, you have a vimesh. That's like a machine. He enjoys what he does so much, you don't have to tell him what to do. He just does. You tell him, stop. No, no, I can't stop. Why? Because Emmanuel is also doing also 24 hours a day. So I'm going to do like this. Sonny works 24 hours a day. I'm going to do like this. Batya works 24 Everybody works on the key roof team. Everybody works 24 hours a day. They don't want to stop. You tell them, take a break. It's holiday. It's this. No, no, no. I got to do it. What? Toshim. In the business world, it's a little different. You have to beg people to work. Why? Because they can't wait to go home. Because they're not passionate about what they work. They're not passionate about what they do. So when I have people work for me, you know, certain types of people, you have to beg them to work. So unless you tell them what to do, they don't do it. You come to them at the end of the day, so what do you do? Oh, I'm waiting for you. What do you mean waiting for me? Waiting for you to tell me what to do. What do you mean you're waiting for me to tell you what to do? I, 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 I pay you $50,000 a year, so you do stuff with or without me telling you what to do. Oh... Really? What do you mean? You think I paid you to sit here and, and, and play with the computer Tetris? What do you mean? 
Some people, they don't like what they do, so you have to, you have to, they're waiting for you. Waiting for you to tell them what to do. Other people, you have to tell them to stop. Like Team Bezot Hashem, you have to tell them to stop. Stop guys, go, take a break, go sleep. Tshuvah Rabotai is very different than anything else in the world. Because a person that's a real Baal Tshuvah is a person that's always going to be looking for more. Looking for more emet. Looking for more mitzvot. Looking to continuously work on themselves and fix themselves. They're never looking for a break. They're never looking for stop or vacation. They're looking for more. Why? Because they found the source of truth and they want all of it. I remember somebody was very confused to see me reading while I was walking to Beknesset over the holiday. He goes, what, you read all the time? I said, no, just now I'm reading. I don't know, what kind of question is that? He goes, what, do you, do you read? Do you read? Do you also read when you drive? I said, no, I listen to stuff instead. But after, I, after, after I, he passed, and I passed, and uh, I thought to myself, I'm like, well, it's strange to him because he's not reading. Why is he not reading? Oh, because he, to him, Judaism is just something you do when you have nothing else to do, maybe. But if I told you I have a book that has all the answers to any question that you ever have in your, in your life, it's a spiritual high. Why wouldn't you want to read it? If someone told you, listen, I have a book by uh, the angel Michael. Angel Michael wrote a book and I have it. Each copy, $10,000. Be a line out the door, people buying the, buying the book of angel Michael. Why? Because, well, angel Michael, angel Michael, wow. $10,000, you should have charged more, it's cheap. But I tell them, listen, there's a book by God. Michael's boss. Free. That they don't want to read so much. Tshuva Rabotai is not just something you do one time. Tshuva is something that you can delve into it, delve into it, delve into it. You can't be one of these lazy employees. You can't be one of these people that's waiting for instructions. You have to keep looking and looking and digging and digging. Why? It's the only way you're going to arrive at the truth. The person that sinned the first time just didn't consider the punishment. By the second time, he's sure it's perfectly fine. This is why regret for the sin is not the first step. It's not the first step of tshuva because he doesn't regret it. How many times have you heard people talk about their old days before tshuva? Oh, you remember when we used to be with that club over there? Remember when we met those girls? Remember when we had that thing? And they all talk about their sins like it's mitzvot. Like it's matan Torah. There's matan Torah and then there's their stories. Oh, remember when we did that thing? <laughs> Those are good times, right? Those are good times. You did tshuva 10 years ago. You still won't feel bad about it? Ten years ago, you're still saying it's a good story. Oh, I used to go to clubs. Oh, I used to have a new girl every week, a new guy every week, a new cat every week, a new this every week. Oh, I used to sit against the Shem on a regular basis. 
and you're still telling the stories about it, Hashem Yechem, you haven't even begun tshuva yet. You have not begun tshuva yet. Meaning, you're still at the level that you think it's permissible. And you're just not doing it because it's better not to do it because you're going to get more money maybe. It's a zgula to keep Shabbat. It's a zgula to keep Tarat Mishpacha. It's good for the kids. The Holy Israel explains the first step is stop the sin because you're stopping it in reality because of your ego. You have not arrived at regret yet. Because you don't understand what the sin is yet. You don't understand how much you hurt Shemaim. How you disrespected Shemaim yet. Until you get to the Omek Adin. To the depth of judgment. You have no idea what you did in Shemaim. How are you going to regret it? In reality, you're only going to stop dating her because it's good to marry a Jew. You're only going to stop stealing because it doesn't really look good. The kids maybe not going to have a hard time finding a Shiduch. If their father is known thief. It's not good. You still think it's allowed. And that's why the first step is just stop. Second step is don't go back to it. But the only way to arrive at step number three is through Musal. Only way. Why? You need to understand the cost of sinning. You need to understand the depth of the judgment. What does it mean when I violate Shabbat? What does it mean in Shemaim? What am I going to get if I violate Shemaim? If I violate the rules of heaven? What does it mean? What's the price of eating non-kosher steak? Other than what I pay the waiter on my credit card. What's the price in Shemaim? Gan Eden, somewhere in between Kafakela. Gilgul, what's it mean? Until a person understands the depth of judgment, they'll never regret it. Because there's nothing to regret. If anything, they're proud of their, of their past. They tell their kids, Ah, when I was your age, you know how many girlfriends I had? When I was your age, you know how many girlfriends I had? Ah, well, you only have two. Ah, your generation's weak, feminine. Like the rabbi says, they're feminine. He thinks he's doing a mitzvah by telling his kid that he went out with a lot of girlfriends. He never regretted it. 25 years he's religious, he hasn't, be, he hasn't begun tshuva yet. Why? Because tshuva, tshuva, where's the Rambam says tshuva? Tshuva only after Hashem Itbar can testify he's not going to sin. He's not going to go back to it again. How is he going to testify for you when you don't even regret it? You don't even see it as a sin. You don't even see it as a sin. How could Hashem testify for us that you are not going to go back to sinning if we don't even think it's a sin? They ask him in Shemaim, Hashem, your son over there, I know he hasn't wasted seed in like two years and everything, but uh, is he good? He's, He's not going to go back? Shem says, well, are you kidding me? The guy's thinking about non-stop. The guy's thinking about non-stop. If, he, if his wife is not next to him at all times, eh, he's, he's, he's going back to it. He's thinking about non-stop. Hey, 
Hashem, uh, what about uh, gambling? Gambling is, uh, did he do tshuva for gambling? Did he do tshuva for gambling? What? Tshuva for gambling? Yeah, but he hasn't gambled for five years. Yes, he hasn't gambled in five years. Hashem tells the Bedin, he hasn't gambled in five years because I took all his money. He doesn't have any money to gamble. It's not that he's not gambling because he doesn't want to gamble. He can't wait to gamble. He's, he's still looking on the internet at all the poker players and all the baseball players and all the stuyot of the world. He's looking every day on the internet. Oh, I can't wait till I get some money so I get put a nice 50, 100,000 on the table. Go back to the old times. He's still thinking about it. Shem Yachem. Why? He doesn't realize it's stealing yet. He doesn't realize it's bad. He still thinks it's, ah, yeah, but there's religious people there. At the casino. Rabotai Karim, a person never gets to step number three of tshuva because he never feels bad for the sin in the first place. Because he doesn't want to learn Musar. That's why Shlomo Melech says a person who doesn't learn Musar is like dead. Why is he dead? He can never do tshuva. Because tshuva, Rabotai Karim, we learn here, tshuva is much deeper, much deeper than we thought. It's not you just keep mitzvot. The donkey also keeps Shabbat. You ever see a monkey drive a car on Shabbat? Show me. One monkey in the world drives a car on Shabbat. Show me. I'll give you a million bucks. I'll borrow. One monkey drives on Shabbat. You're not going to find it. Why? Because monkey wants to go in the garden. No. Because monkey doesn't drive. Doesn't drive not on Shabbat. Doesn't drive in the end. He's also not Jewish. But the point is, Rabotai, is that not driving on Shabbat doesn't mean you did tshuva. Eating kosher doesn't mean you do tshuva. Doing tshuva first says you stop the sin. Second says, you have to say you're not going to return to it. How can you say you're not going to return to it if you still don't feel bad about it? That's why you have to get to the point of understanding, first and foremost, that it's wrong. Once you understand that it's wrong, that what you did is wrong, then you can get to a point of starting to regret it. You're not going to get to say, oh, I'm not going to go back to it if you still think it's right. Once you've identified, oh, you know what? I'm not going to do it anymore. Fine, why? Ah, it's better not to do it. Okay, that's good enough to get started. But why are you saying you're never going to do it again? Because I've learned and I realize it's wrong. It's wrong to go against the Shem. It's wrong to go against the Torah. It's wrong. As you continue learning the Omek Adin, the depth of judgment, you start regretting it because you realize not only is it wrong, it's evil. It's not only wrong to make a sin, it's evil. Because you're going against the hand that feeds you. And instead of saying at the very least, thank you, you're spitting in his face. You're using what Hashem Itbarach gave you against him. He gave you a car, you drive on Shabbat. He gave you money, you go gamble it. He gave you food, you make it in a non-kosher way. He gave you the ability to produce kids, you waste it. And so on and so forth. But unless you learn Musar and you learn the Omek Adin, the depth of judgment, you're never going to get to regret it. 
And that's why Hashem can never testify for many people today and say they're not going to sin again. Why? Because they still haven't arrived at step number three of regretting their sin. They're still talking about their sins as if it's mitzvot, as if it's chavayot, as if it's like an adventure. It's a good experience. It's memory. Oh, you know, when we were kids, you used to do this, this and that. You still haven't gotten to feel bad. If you haven't gotten to feel bad, that means that when you say chatanu avinu pashanu, you don't really know what you're saying. What am I, when, when did I even sin? I didn't murder anybody. Why? I violated Shabbat. It's technically allowed. It's just that I, uh, I'm just tzaddik now. Until you understand what happened to the point of not only it's not allowed, but it's evil. And you regret it, you haven't completed your tshuva yet. And then Hashem cannot testify for us. Now what about the fact that Hashem knows the future? Hashem knows the future. Hashem knows that if a certain person is going to go back to the sin anyway. So how could He testify for us if He knows we're going to go back to the sin? So the only Israel explains that there's two mindsets. There's two senses of, uh, of, of knowledge. We're going to end over here. So you understand we're going to continue this Mishnah Bezat Hashem next week. The first sense of knowledge that Hashem has is based on the common sense of the situation, which I'll explain in a moment. The second is complete knowledge that he has based on the fact that he's God and knows the past, the present, the future, and it's all the same to him. When he's testifying according to the Rambam, when he's testifying for us that we did tshuva, he's only using the first part of the knowledge. He's using the common sense knowledge, the knowledge that's based on all of the factors that are relevant to you specifically. Meaning, you stopped sinning. You identified that it's wrong to sin. And you now have regretted it. So based on those first three steps, logically you have made an active commitment and you've publicly stated it. I'm not going to sin anymore. Hashem says, according to where he is now, according to where she is now, based on our own state of mind, based on our own neshama, based on our own understanding, she's not going to sin anymore. Even though I know she's going to go back to it in five years from now. She is not planning on going back to it. I just know the future. But I'm going to testify for her as she's not going to sin. Why is this so significant for Hashem to testify for us? Because now, the next time she sins in five years from now, it'll be like she sinned the first time. Not the second time. Why? If she sinned the first time, that means that she just didn't consider the punishment. She didn't consider the punishment. Which means it's much easier to do tshuva once you consider the punishment. Once you hear one lecture, oh, I can't believe it. Ooh. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I can't believe I, I I did that. I can't believe it. Oh no no no, punishment. Okay, I'm sorry, Hashem. I'm doing tshuva. Why? It's the first time you did the sin. But if Hashem didn't testify for us because of His knowledge of where we are, that means that the next time, five years, ten years, twenty years from then, she makes the sin. 
It's technically like the second time. Meaning, she's not, in her eyes, she's not sinning. In his eyes, he's not sinning. And that makes the sin much worse. That makes the sin much worse. So here, we talk about tshuva all the time. And we see that just looking a little bit deeper into it, it's worlds apart. Worlds apart from where, where we thought we are. You look at the halachot of, of what the Rambam says, what you're supposed to do according to, to Ilchot Shuvah, all the steps that a person needs to take. In halacha number four, he says he has to constantly call out to God, crying and entreating, meaning the regret. The regret has to be a constant thing. Yitbodidut didn't start with Breslev. Yitbodidut started with the Rambam, and started with the Tanaim, started with the Amoraim, started with Avraham Avinu. But cried to Hashem, why? Liot Hashav tzoyek tamid lifne Hashem bebechi betachnunim. Veoset tzedakah kipi kocho. He has to constantly cry out in front of Hashem. He has to perform charity as much as he's able to. He has to distance himself from, from, from the sins or any object of sin. Some even say he has to change his name. If he has a name, why? when does he have to change a name? If he has a name that he's known by as a sinner. For example, people have certain nicknames. People call him, uh, you know, Jack the Hammer or something. Why? Because Jack used to hammer anybody's head that didn't uh, listen to his mob boss. So Jack the Hammer cannot continue going back as Jack the Hammer. Why? Because that's Jack the Rasha. He has to start using a real name. Can't use the nickname that he had. Can't use a name that everybody knows him. He's the guy that uh, makes sins. He has to travel into exile from his home. He has to move, possibly. If, if he's surrounded by all of his... Uh, let's say, for example, if he's a, a, a former drunk, uh, alcoholic, uh, drug addict womanizer, and so on and so forth, all these types of addictions, and the people that are around him are still that, he has to move. Can't be continue, continue staying around these people. Why? It's going to constantly give him unnecessary tests. And a person that gives himself unnecessary tests, Gemara says, Rasha. Who are you to test yourself? No, but I can pass it. Who said? Why are you so sure of yourself? Oh, that means you're still not you're still not understanding the depth of judgment. You're still not understanding how bad it is to really sin. It changes behavior in its entirety to the good and to the path of the righteous. We see here that there's a, a lot of things he has to do. He has to be submissive, humble, meek in spirit, meaning he has to learn musal. He has to work on himself. Al-Khan number three says he also has to verbalize his confession. He has to outright say all the sins that he made, not to the public, to Hashem. To such an extent that the Rambam says that a person who doesn't do it, doesn't confess his sins out loud, it's like a person that dips into the mikveh holding a uh, lizard. He thinks he's going to be kosher, but he's still tameh. 
Why? Because it's a, it's a funny musab, but it's real. A person needs to admit that he's made a sin. Admit that he did something wrong, terribly wrong. This may be something he does in the beginning, this may be something that he does in the end. The point being, Abu Tai, is that it needs to be something that he says, it needs to be something that he does. So here we see that Ben Bagbaktil teaches us that we have to delve into it, delve into it. Delve into it can mean on any other part of the Torah. But even something that we've been learning already for a few years together, we see we haven't even gotten even to 1% of it yet. Because most of us are still talking about our past, like it's a, uh, we did mitzvot. We're talking about like Matan Torah. Oh, remember I used to do this, I used to do this. Still proud of our past. Still proud of your past. You stop in the Now this is not supposed to demotivate anyone. As I said earlier, as a, as a disclosure, it only de- demotivates the losers, the ones that are looking for a way out. A person that's looking for the truth is supposed to be motivated by this. Why? Hashem sees that I'm looking for the truth and He just uncovered my eyes. Now I saw another chapter of the truth. Why doesn't Hashem show you this day one? Because you weren't ready for it. Because in the beginning, we thought it's allowed to drive on Shabbat. So we're just becoming tzaddikim, not to drive. So if he told us, listen, the only way you're going to do tshuva is if you feel bad. You're going to look at guys like, you want me to feel bad for being with her? Come on, Hashem, look how good looking she is. You made her. Like, you want me to feel bad about that? Yes. He wants you to feel bad about it. As a matter of fact, you should cry. You should cry a lot. You should cry a lot. These are the things we have to come to an understanding have to understand these things. That's tshuva. When Hashem tells us you have to, I want your hearts, not your clothing, not your fasts. Kamala Masechet Tanit, page 25a. Brings up a pasuk from Ezekiel. That Am Yisrael started uh, putting sacks on and put ash on their forehead. Prophet says to them, Hashem doesn't need your sacks, doesn't need your... Uh, Ashes on your head. You need your hearts. Don't rip your clothes. Rip your hearts. Rosh Hashanah, we're supposed to do tshuva. If we didn't make it, we're supposed to do tshuva now, this week. But Yom Kippur is the appeal. That means that over these next few days, every person needs to do whatever they possibly can to get themselves closer to tshuva. Now tshuva is something that requires mesirut nefesh because... It's not normal for a person to feel bad about things they felt good about. It's not a normal feeling. You're not going to automatically just decide to change your mind that the steak that you tasted that was not kosher is all of a sudden it's disgusting. It's not disgusting. You're a liar. It was delicious for you. You liked it. You enjoyed it. You'd have it again if it was uh, really allowed. If you found some uh, leniency, you'd have it again. So how do you get to that point? Requires mesirut nefesh. Requires a person to do the same thing as Resh Lakish says in the Gemara Maseret Brachot. If a person wants Torah, he has to make sacrifices. If a person wants tshuva, he has to make sacrifices. Sacrifices means you have to do take steps that are difficult for you. You have to do things that are difficult for you. Things that you do even though you don't understand why. So even if you didn't understand why there's a fast today, you were supposed to fast. Why? 
because some big chacham, some big tzaddik, some big rabbi said fast, you're supposed to fast. Yeah, but I'm not really sure yet why and who and what and when. It doesn't make a difference. That's Mesirut Nefesh. Mesirut Nefesh means that you're going to do work even when you're not obligated to do it. You're not just trying to fulfill your quota. You're trying to do above and beyond. You're trying to be a superstar. Because once you show Hashem that you're trying to be a superstar, He'll help you become a superstar. Someone that becomes to become purified, they give him a hand from Shemaim. So a person needs to do things that are difficult for him. If, let's say, for example, right now he's learning 15 minutes a day because that's all he can do, right now he has to push himself. Half hour, 45 minutes, an hour, two hours. He has to push himself hard. Yeah, but it's hard for me. Good. That's Mesirut Nefesh. That's what you get paid extra for. That's what you get the next bonus round for. If he's giving 50 bucks, 100 bucks a month in stakar every month, he has to push himself. 200. Yeah, but I'm not sure if I can afford it. Afford it, not afford it. Hashem runs the bills anyway. Hashem runs the market. Hashem runs your panasah. Hashem decides what you're going to get in Rosh Hashanah anyway. You have to show him you believe in him. If a person is doing something and he's already coasting, he's already at a level where he's comfortable with his Judaism, he's comfortable with his Torah, that means it's time to push himself. Why? He needs to get to the next chapter of Chuba. Because that's the only way that we're going to peel the klipa that's made from all of our sins to finally start feeling bad about all the sins. Right now, we've all arrived at what? We're not going to sin anymore, Baruch Hashem. At least not on purpose. And we know it's wrong. But for the most part, we're not really sure why it's wrong. Other than Hashem said so. Other than Hashem said so, we're not really sure what it, why it's wrong. Why does Hashem care if I drive on Shabbat? Why does Hashem care if I, drive, if I, if I shave with a razor? Why does Hashem care if I eat this steak or that steak? They both came from the same cow. Okay, so this one happens to have a little cheese on it. Big deal. We don't really understand why. Because we have a lot of tum'ah on us, a lot of klipa from our sins. We're not feeling bad for them. The way to get that klipa off is mesirut nefesh. We have to push ourselves to do more. To push ourselves to do more. Pray more, learn more, do more, give more. All of these other steps that the Rambam says. Because if you do it, you can get to such a high level of yirat shamayim that you'll actually understand what you read during Yom Kippur, I must have read this, I don't know, I have no idea how many times, many, many times. You all read it many times also. The story of Akedat Yitzchak. The story of Akedat Yitzchak is a story that we all depend on. Why? Because that's part of the reason why Am Yisrael still exists today. Even though the Gemara in Maseret Shabbat says that the schut, the merit of Akedat Yitzchak, was already spent. Still, there's a deal in Shemaim that counts for us that were related to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov that made such a huge mitzvah, willing to sacrifice all they loved. But if you actually read the Akitat Yitzchak that we actually read in the Shachrit, uh, of Rosh Hashanah, it actually tells you a little bit more of the details of what happened there. 
I mean, unless you read it in the Midrash already. Most people don't read the Midrash, but a lot of people read the Tefillah. Problem is that not many people cry, because not many people understand what they're reading. That's why I tell you guys, it's much more important for you to understand what you're reading than just to uh, be a robot and read it. Anyway, in the Tefillah, it talks about Akedat Yitzchak, and it says literally of how the whole behind-the-scenes story, behind-the-scenes story of what happened, how Hashem Yitbarach told Avram Avinu, Avram, bring me your son, your only son, as a korban. Avram brought Yitzchak with him, but before that he told Sarah Imenu, Sarah, I'm taking our son because he hasn't, uh, he's grown up already, but he hasn't uh, learned everything about Torah. I'm taking him with me. And Sarah Imenu says, but not too far. This shows that she was human. Even though Yitzchak Avinu was 37 years old, he's still Ima's little boy. He's still Ima's little baby. So, Sarai Menu says to Avram, okay, take him, but not too far. I mean, she doesn't know he's in a... And Avram says, whatever happens, always trust in Hashem. He says in the tefillah, whatever happens, trust in Hashem. Have bitachon in Hashem. Strange response. He takes Yitzchak, he takes Ishmael, and he takes um, Eliezer, his helper, and they get closer and closer to the mountain, then he says to, he sees in the mountain that there's something going on over there. He asks Yitzchak, you see? He says, yeah, yeah, something's going on over there. Ooh, Shechina is over there. He asks Eliezer and Ishmael, do you see anything? They say, other than the mountain? No. He goes, okay, the donkey also doesn't see anything. You stay with the donkey. You stay with the donkey. Donkey also doesn't see anything over there. You're just like the donkey. Even though Eliezer is one of ten people that never died, went to Ganedim with the clothes on, he did not have the merit to see what was happening on the mountain. So Avram Avinu wasn't worried about hurting his feelings. It's just the truth. You don't see anything. You stay here with the donkey. Donkey also doesn't see. People, you tell this to somebody today, they get offended. Everybody gets offended about everything today. You don't say hello to them the right way, they get offended. Oh, he didn't say hello. He said hello to you. Yeah, but he just, he just did the head thing. He didn't like say, Oh, Shabbat. Ah, he didn't give you like a whole uh, welcoming uh, committee. Anyway, they go up to the mountain. Yitzhak Avinu. Saba. We made... The Mishkar. We made the whole thing. The whole Koban. Everything is ready. Where's the Koban? Where's the Koban? Where's the Koban? Avram says, you're the Koban. You're the Koban. If it was me or you, what do we do? Abba. I'll be in touch. Text me. Send me an email. Let me know how it happened. Let me know how it worked out for you. Ah, Koban. What is Sakavino says? Abba, make sure you tie, because I'm strong. Stronger than you, Abba. 
37 years old, strong. You're Abba, you're uh, 137 already. Even the, uh, the the pension doesn't pay anymore because they said you'd expect you to die already 20 years ago. Uh, enough, Abba. Listen, tie me up. says, how do we learn Alachot of how to tie up certain animals where, you know, on Shabbat? So, uh, you know, because you're not allowed to torture an animal. But at the same token, if you don't tie the animal, it may run away. So, so tie three of its legs, but not all four. Why? Because if you tie three of its legs, you tie them, it can still move. It's still mobile, but it won't run away. But if you tie all four, then it won't move. Because where do we learn it from? We learn it from Akedat Yitzchak. Masechet Shabbat says we learn it from Akedat Yitzchak. Why? Because Yitzchak Avinu says, Oh, I'm the Koban. Oh, no problem. So listen, tie my arms till my legs. So I don't move. I can't move, even if I want to, because I'm strong last minute if I give up. So now, so make sure, why? Because if we're already going to do Koban, make sure it's kasher. If we have bad thoughts in our head, if I move, then it's not, it's, it's pasul. I'm pasul, Abba, I'm not kosher. Okay, Hashem's not going to take me as a Koban. This is what they're talking about right now. Avraham Avinu, it says, it says in your tefillah, Avraham Avinu and Yitzchak are both crying hysterical. They're crying hysterical. It says in the, in the Torah, it says, it says in your, in your Sidu, you, uh, you read it, I can't seem to find it for some reason, but the point is, you read it, it says that Avraham Avinu and Yitzchak are both tearing like it's rain. And Chazal explained why they cried. Avraham is crying while he's about to kill his son. No? He's crying because he's excited to fulfill the mitzvah for Hashem. But at the same time, he's also crying because he's about to lose his son too. But in the beginning, he was excited about giving... He's, in the beginning, he's excited about doing mitzvah for Hashem. When is he crying about his son? When his son reminds him and he says, Abba, it says that in your Machzor, you read it. He says, Abba, Tell Ima, tell Ima that her love, her, her, the love of our life is no longer here. Love of our life, me, is no longer here. And I'm sorry I can't be there for her to help her mourn. Because who's going to be there for her to mourn me? If you understand these words, you start crying in the middle of tefillah. He's crying, he's crying. The angels start crying. Why? They're like, Abba, Hashem. Hashem, look what you're about to kill. They all think he's going to kill them. He's going to let it happen. No one knows except Hashem what's happening. Hashem, look. They're excited, but they're crying. But you're going to let this happen? No, Abraham, Yitzchak. Hashem, stop it, please. Let us stop it. Don't kill him, please. No. Hashem, find somebody else. Take Ishmael. Take somebody else. Don't kill Yitzchak. He's a tzaddik. They start crying. If you look at the Gemara, Masechet Chagiga, Masechet Chagiga says, where does, the, where does the fire of Geinom come from? It comes from the sweat of the angels. Why? The angels are fire. But they have the privilege of being next to Hashem. They have the privilege of seeing something we can't see while we're still in human form. And they're scared to death. They're so scared of the of Hashem Barach, they sweat profusely, non-stop sweating, and all of the sweat is fire, and that's what fills Gehenom. They're fire, and they're all scared to death of Hashem. 
And now they're crying to Hashem with more tears. Hashem, please, you're about to kill uh, everything. It's Chak. Then Hashem says, Now I know you fear me. Now I know you fear me to Avram. Avram, Avram. He says his name twice, don't touch the boy. Now I know you fear me. Now I know you fear me. Why? Avram, Avram, you've now arrived at a bigger Yirat Shamaim than the angels. You have now arrived at a bigger Yirat Shamaim than the angels. So when we think, we think ourselves, why do we have the merit of Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov? It's 4,500 years ago. What's it connected to me? Why did Avraham get such big merit for all the things that he did? Wow, ooh, like why, what? Because you understand, when you go and you delve into it, and delve into it, you see it's not just, oh, he brought his son and maybe he lost his mind momentarily. He was crying like anybody else would be crying. He didn't want to kill his son. He told his wife what any one of us would do. He was a human being just like us, but he wasn't like us. Why? His Yirat Shemaim reached higher level of the, than the angels. This Rabotai is just a little small token of just some of the things you can learn from your Machzor, from the Mishnayot, from Musar in general. You can learn from everything in the Torah. All you got to do is delve into it and delve into it and delve into it. And Hashem will unfold our eyes. Be'ezat Hashem, Hashem will continue to unfold our eyes and continue to unfold the truth for us in this coming year in a much, much greater level than any other time in the past. Be'ezat Hashem, help us do real tshuva. Any questions? No, he, no, he, uh, he, the, uh, no, all of the Avot were considered higher than the angels because one example it's shown is that uh, when uh, Yaakov Avinu, when Yaakov Avinu, after he uh, studied at the yeshiva of Shimon Evil for 14 years, the Torah says that he didn't sit down, he didn't uh, lay down for 14 years. Meaning that for 14 years he sat in a chair or stood up, even for sleeping purposes. Finally, after 14 years, he leaves the yeshiva. And we read to Marashah that he got to the uh, certain point of the mountain and he lay down and he fell asleep. And um, he had a dream where Hashem uncovered himself to him and told him about all the promises that he made to his father and to his grandfather, Avraham Yitzchak. Now when Yaakov woke up, Yaakov was scared. Because he said, he didn't consider the fact that he had this dream that Hashem just uncovered himself to him. What did he consider? He considered the fact that he slept in a place that the Shekhinah is there. The Hashem Baruch is there. But the uh, Chachamim explained that in a dream that he had, he had an amazing dream, we had all these angels going up and down the ladder, going up and down the ladder, all the angels. Instead of thinking about, oh, amazing, this, the angels, this, that, all these things, he is thinking about, oh, God is here. Why? Because 
As soon as God showed up, all the angels ran away. All the angels ran away. They're all so scared, they all ran away. What is it like, the Chachamim say? It says it's like flies around the little baby before the mommy shoes him away. The flies are going to be around the baby, around the food or so on. When? When no one's shooing them away. Once the mommy comes, oh, what? everybody runs away. They compared all the angels to flies. They compared all the angels to flies next to Yaakov. All the angels were flies next to Yaakov. Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov were not regular people. They were regular people, but they perfected themselves to levels that's beyond our comprehension. So we understand that they did it through Yirat Shemayim. They did it through understanding the depth of judgment to such an extent that they really were excited to do every mitzvah, even if that meant destroying themselves. So even though the most important thing in the world for Avram Avinu was his son Yitzchak that he waited for him a hundred years, he was excited to make that a sacrifice for his son. Fear of Hashem. But no fear of losing anything in this world in comparison. He had no fear whatsoever of losing the material of this world, the feeling of this world, or the pain that he's going to feel not having his son, or the pain he's going to feel after his wife finds out. He didn't have any fear of that. He only had fear of Hashem. And that fear is what made them very special. The ultimate level of Yirat Shemayim. That's why when people teach about loving Hashem, it's, it's, it's humorous. Because, again, you cannot even arrive at loving Hashem without fearing Him to the ultimate level. There are, the Holy Israel also explains that there are different levels of uh, Yirat Shemayim, but there's also different levels of Avat Hashem. And one level of Avat Hashem is loving the good He gives you. And most people think that they love the good He gives them because they think they, they understand what the good is. Now there's two, love, there's two main levels of Avat Hashem. One level of loving the good that He gives us, being appreciative of the good that He gives us. And two is uh, loving, his, loving Him because of His magnitude, His majesty and so on. The problem is that most people think that they love Him because of all the good that He gives them. But the problem is, is that that also is not true because they only think that what they define as good, is good. So when he gives them a broken leg, they don't think it's good. So they don't love him for that. But they don't realize it's also good. When he gives them a uh, disease, they don't think it's good. So they don't appreciate that. They only think of the material things, the car, the house, the wife, the kids, the husband. All that stuff is good. So they want that. So they think they love Hashem because of all the good He gives them based on their own definition of good. So you can't love Hashem based on your own definition. You have to love Hashem based on the Torah's definition. So we can't even get to that until we understand what real fear of Hashem is first. Because once we fear punishment, then we can eventually get to a point of fearing His majesty. Once we fear His majesty and His glory and how enormous He is and so on, then we could eventually start understanding what good really is, and then we could start loving Him for the good that He really is giving us, and then get to loving Him because of His majesty. But this is a... Alvai, we get to any one of those levels. Alvai, the whole generation... Rabbi Nachum in Breslov says, Alvai, the whole generation will just fear pure based on punishment. Not even majesty, just punishment. That's his generation, 200 years ago.
Imagine us. Next. We say that, that the, uh, they need to um, pick up that the angel was lying about, you know, about him, about his sins. We suggest that that's the same reason. And we should see say that, you know, he did not sin. Is that like some kind of contradiction or what, what is exactly what we should be talking about? The Gemara says that uh, anyone that says that David Amelech sinned is wrong. Gemara testifies that David Amelech didn't sin. Anyone that thinks that David Amelech sinned is wrong. Gemara says it. But why was the prophet, why did the prophet come to him and say, and rebuke him, give him a story about sheep. He says one, uh, one person has one sheep, another person has many sheep, and that person has many sheep, takes the one sheep. What is your judgment? What is the rule? And David Amelech says, Oh, death penalty, death penalty, death penalty. Why? There's a rule in those days where somebody that steals, they kill them, they hang them. Why? So other people see he's a thief and they kill him. Don't steal. So the prophet says to David, It's you. It's you. So why did they rebuke him if he didn't sin? is that in the level of David, in the level of David, in our level, in anyone else's level, it's not a sin at all, what he did. Why? Because she was divorced. She was not married. So he was perfectly allowed to be with her. Number two, he's the king. He's allowed to have 18 wives. So it's not like he's uh, not allowed to have more than one wife. It's perfectly allowed. So why did he get rebuked? Because David Amelech was on a higher level which he had to also be concerned about how certain things are done for the sake of Kvod Hashem, for the sake of the honor of Hashem. That it's not even viewed as a certain thing, it's not even thought as a certain thing. There was a certain procedure that he had to follow that he didn't follow. Because he didn't consider it, he thought that everyone's like him. Tzadikim. So for that he got rebuked. And the minute that he understood that he made a, he didn't do it, he didn't perfect the mitzvah, like it's expected of him, he did tshuva for the rest of his life. He did tshuva for over 20 years, he did tshuva just for this one thing, that the Gemara says he didn't even sin. So that's the misunderstanding a lot of people think, that they think that because in his level to sin, therefore to sin for anybody else. Wrong. Same thing about Moshe Rabbeinu. If it wasn't written in the Torah, we wouldn't even be allowed to say it. For example, the Moshe Rabbeinu, we hit the, uh, hit the uh, Selah, instead of speaking to it. If we hit the cellar 500 times, it's not a sin. Hopefully water comes out. Hopefully the cellar, hopefully rock comes out of it. Something comes out of it. But for Moshe Rabbeinu, it was a sin. Show me one place in the Torah, it says, you're not allowed to hit the rock. Let's say. In his level, it was just a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, microscopic, a little bit less, Kvod Hashem. A little bit less, honor of Hashem in the world. And for someone in his level, it was expected. So the more a person gets closer and closer to Hashem, the more Hashem unfolds to show him the truth. But there's a price for it. What's the price? The price is that there's a higher expectation for that person too. Measure for measure. And that's what we're going to get to from Ben Heihei. That uh, he says, Lefum tzara agra, That the reward is in proportion to the uh, exertion person that wants big reward has to exert himself a lot more than a person that uh, is just trying to coast. 
in general, that's one of the things we want to try with other Hashem to, to cover in the next part, is this whole mentality of trying to coast through life. And how flawed it is and how impossible it is. It's impossible for a Jew to coast through life. Impossible. Uh, a Jew that thinks that he's coasting is a Jew that's sinning and hasn't even begun with chuba. So, uh, I think it's, uh, you know, this is a very, very big Mishnah. But we'll cover it next. So, well, in the case of Moses, it's not really even because he did something that, uh, why he did not do what Hashem told him to do. It's not even because of that circumstance. No, it's, it's, Hashem said, go speak to the rock. And Moshe spoke to the rock, but he didn't answer because it was the wrong rock. And the people were very annoying and they kept making fun of him. And they kept making, and he, for the sake of Hashem, seeing, thinking that they're thinking that Hashem can't do it, he got angry and he hit the rock. Because he couldn't find the rock. The Yetzirah kept hiding the rock. Couldn't find the rock. So he hit a rock and the water came out of it. So even though he got the message across, the water came out, everybody's happy. Hashem says, you're not allowed to get mad. Even if it's for my honor. Even if it's for anything. You're not allowed to get angry. Not allowed to hit. And What you did was a little bit less Kvod Hashem. Even though he got the job done, the water came out. The whole point of me sending you to the rock is to... Do some magic, so water comes out. But the problem is that in the eyes of everybody else, they're going to say, wait a minute. Forty years ago, he hit the rock, and water came out. So, Moshe has tricks in his bag. He hits rocks, and water comes out. So maybe it's a trick. Maybe it's not really Hashem. Because forty years ago, he hit it, and water came out. Hashem told him, hit the rock, and water came out the first time. So he did it again, so maybe it's just a trick. Hashem says, see, because you did it again, now they're used to it. Same thing with sin. In the beginning, we didn't consider. Second time, it's mutah. Second time, it's already allowed. We got used to it. So now they saw the same thing twice. Now they think it's a trick. They don't think it's me. They don't think it's Hashem. Some of them, even if it's a chance of 1%, that one person would think it's a trick, and it's not Hashem, that means there's a little bit less honor for Hashem in the world. And I gave you the job to sanctify my name, you didn't sanctify my name. In your level, it's a sin. In anyone else's level, it's not a sin. It's not even a, a thought of a sin. But in your level, you had the job of sanctifying my name to the highest level humanly possible. You didn't do it, for that you lose. There are obviously other reasons also why Hashem decided what He decided. We don't really know all of Cheshbon al-Shamayim, but I've explained that in the past. There are other beneficial reasons of why Hashem did not allow Moshe Rabbeinu to enter the land. But the point is, is that it's a the honor of Hashem is one of the only things that a person should cry for in their life. Once a person truly understands their obligation in the world, they'll realize that the reason why Avram Avinu was crying in Akidat Yitzchak was for the honor of Hashem. And you don't understand. Most people, you say this story to them, it's like, wow, wow, that's a deek, wow, great, what a tzaddik. No, you're obligated to be like him. It's not wow, I'm not, we're not telling you the story so you say, wow, what a tzaddik. Avram doesn't need you to tell him what he's in. He's in Shemaim already. He's in heaven. He's in heaven. He knows he's a tzaddik. He's okay. He doesn't need us to tell us he's a tzaddik. Why do we say these stories? Why? So we learn this is our obligation also. We're supposed to care enough about the honor of Hashem that we cry about it. 
to such an extent that it's the only thing you cry about in the world. So what about if somebody dies? What about if somebody suffers? What about if you have pain? I'm not supposed to cry about it. Why? Because if a person truly knows, knows, I don't mean believes, knows that Hashem runs the world, they'll only cry about Kvod Hashem. But if they believe in Hashem, then they'll cry about their problems too. Because they think that maybe their problems are not part of the master plan. So maybe Hashem, if He fixes these problems, then we can go back to work. They don't realize that work is their problems. Deep, deep, Rabotai, deep, deep. This is, a, it doesn't, I could sit with you till next year. The depth of the Torah is, uh, we continue ter- talking, as I'm talking, I'm learning. I'm telling you, it's the depth of the Torah is, uh, <laughs> he says, it's an understatement. Delve into it, and delve into it, and, you'll, you'll, uh, and there's no, there's no uh, end to it. Everything is in it. It's an understatement. It's an understatement. You should say, delve into it, delve into it, delve into it, delve into it, for 500 years, delve into it, delve into it, delve into it. Then eventually get to the point of understanding, maybe, that everything is in it. Yes? The two are the same thing. They the, the go hand in hand. You're saying don't study things that are beyond you. The Arshurim, Baruch Hashem, are for everyone. Arshurim, we have students, Baruch Hashem, that are Tamidei Chachamim, and Yeshivot, and Kolalim, and uh, some rabbis actually listen to the Shurim. And we have some people that are brand new to the Torah. First time they ever heard a Shiur Torah is with us. And we have some people that are complete goyim. Live, uh, one guy uh, said he's been watching my Shiurim. I just met him recently. He's in Croatia. He's not a Jew, Bechlal. But he discovered Torah to our Shiurim. The Shiurim that we have are applicable for everyone. And the reason why is because they're not only the Torah, the basics of the Torah, but they're the practical aspects of the Torah. The things that you could apply to your life. The second thing is about Torah that's magical, is that Hashem is only going to allow you to understand what you can and should understand anyway. So just like we said, for example, that delve into it and delve into it, he's saying delve into the same thing over and over again. Why would you delve into the same thing over and over again? I already read it. Why should I read Parashat Shavua again after I read it already 30 times? Why is 31 better than the first 30? Because the 31st time, Hashem is going to unfold something that you didn't see the first 30. And you wouldn't have seen unless you read it 30 times. So when you go to Shiu Torah, you also have to understand is that even though all of you were with me here for the last couple of hours, two, three hours, whatever it's been, Baruch Hashem, every single one of you has a different perspective of what I said. Every single one of you, if you all talk at the end to each other, you're all going to mention something different. You may mention some things that are similar that you like, that you remember, that, that affected you, but each one of you, even if it's all the same point, 
Let's say you all like the Avraham Avinu story. Let's say you all like the Tshuva issue. Whatever it is that you like during the Shur. Even if you all like the same exact point, your perception of that point and the way you'll apply that point is different. Just like their faces are different, their personalities are different, their masim are different, and so on and so forth. So, it's a, uh, a the special part of the Torah is that the divine hand is at work at all times. So even though there are certain things in a shiurim that you may not understand, it's not because you're not at a certain level that you shouldn't listen to it. It's that Hashem wants you to focus on something else. When they say don't learn specific things, it's things that you can't understand anything from anyway. Like for example, we highly talk about not studying the Zohar or Kabbalah. Well, unless you're an expert in Gemara, in Shulchan Aruch, in the uh, Tanakh and so on. But you hear me many times mention different stories from the Zohar. So how could I say on one hand, don't study the Zohar, and on the same token, I mention a story from the Zohar. Those are two different things. The stories that we mention from the Zohar, the Zohar has multiple parts. The Zohar also has a very big Midrash. Very big part of it tells us different stories that we're allowed to teach. That you're allowed to learn. There's no problem with it. The parts that you're not supposed to learn are the parts that have to do with angels' names and things of that nature that are purely for the people that are on higher level. That if you do delve into it on your own, you can get yourself into very serious trouble of kfirah and other things. So, but in general, the things that we teach are for everyone. And uh, even if uh, a person takes this shurim seriously and he listens to them again, even if you listen to the shiur ten times, this shiur, the shiur before it, or any other shiur, you listen to it ten times, you'll get ten different things. That's the Torah. It has nothing to do with me. That's the Torah. So, that's why I recommend for people to listen to the shiurim multiple times if it's possible. I mean, the Baruch Hashem has many shiurim and they're long. Um, and if you ever have to make a choice whether to listen to a shiur again or to uh, listen to a new shiur, then listen to a new shiur uh, instead of listening to it again because you've heard it already once. But if you don't have a new shiur, then listen to a shiur again. But Torah is endless. Endless. Next. My knowledge is Jews. Jews, okay. So in that, so it's therefore now it's like two for one, if you don't mind. So if it's just Same price. Jew, <laughs> if it's just the Jew, now does that make uh, like a convert that for some reason did not, you know, get this knowledge, not for some reason attracted to the, you know, to the Torah or feel like a connection to the Torah? Is it possible that this convert might at some point be was a Jew or had Jewish soul but was cut off to the community or something like that? I just said don't I just I just I just talked about not learning Kabbalah. You already want me to go to Kabbalah with you guys? <laughs> I think it was that Ken, I was, I was it's you, you asked very deep questions. It has to do yeah. with Kabbalah. Anything that has to do with Gilgulim, it's Kabbalah. Okay, I'll answer it. 
Uh, number one, because I know the answer. Number two, because it's a useful answer for people. Uh, and it doesn't go into any of the danger zones. But um, remember, that just like I explained to you guys that how the depth of certain things is endless, what I'm about to say to you is also endless. Uh, so it doesn't, nothing that I ever say that's from a Torah is ever the complete subject. You can always delve into it further. Uh, nothing is meant to be uh, implied as if it's complete. You can always delve into it deeper. So, the uh, convert, to my knowledge, the Gemara Maser Nedarim, says that a Jewish baby gets taught the entire Torah by a malach, by an angel, during the nine months while he's in the uh, the mommy's belly. Right before the baby exits the mom's body, that angel hits him on the lips and makes him forget the entire Torah. A sign of that is, some say, the sign of that is the fact that most people have uh, the lip over here, the little separation of the lip, but technically all of mankind has that. Well, most people do. But anyway, the uh, Chachamim mentioned multiple stories of how there were certain children at very young ages, two, three years old, already knew the entire Torah before even learning it, even as recent as 20 years ago. Arab Yagen, Allah Shalom mentioned multiple stories about it. Arab Mizrahi, Yosef Mizrahi, Shikhye mentioned multiple stories about it. Arab Ephraim mentioned multiple stories about it. And I've heard stories from multiple places, even Arab Mutsafi. I've heard stories about it of how they knew people that uh, at young ages knew the entire Torah before learning it. Meaning that the angel, for whatever reason or another, Hashem decreed that uh, they don't forget the entire Torah. And uh, these people, they knew different people. It's not uh, knew or heard about different people. It's not all the same person. That literally were brought into this world with complete knowledge of the entire Torah. So it's not a theory that we're taught the entire Torah. In, uh, it's, it's a fact. That's a provable fact. The fact that people don't want to believe it is their problem, just like anything else in the Torah. Now what about the convert? Um, the convert, I don't, again, just because I don't know doesn't mean anything. I don't know a lot of things. I don't know a lot more than I know. Um, and the convert, from what I know, obviously, since he's not born into a Jewish mom, then uh, he's not, uh, I don't think that he's taught the Torah while he's in uh, his Jewish mom's belly, especially if his, uh, his uh, non-Jewish mom's belly. Especially if his non-Jewish mom is an Abu Dhabi of Adazara. She learns idol worship and so on. Um, and he also doesn't have a neshama that's capable of learning the Torah. The neshama of a goy versus the neshama of a Jew are worlds and worlds apart. No offense to the non-Jews. This is just Torah. And anyone that's listening to this you hopefully is in the process of converting or aspires to convert. If you compare the Gemara, and uh, I believe it's Masechet Abu Dazara, compares the Neshamot 
of a uh, Jew versus a non-Jew, as, as an analogy, if a Jew, if a neshama of a Jew is a bucket of water, a huge, huge well of water, huge well of water, huge bucket of water, huge cistern of water, whatever you want to example, a place that holds a lot of water, after you pour all of it out, you empty all of it out, you know, there's like a little drop that's left. After you've emptied the whole thing out, it's like a little drop somewhere that's left, you know, that still hasn't been, uh, you know, uh, absorbed by the sun. That's the non-Jew neshama. So it's there. It's just nothing to compare. So even if somebody did teach the Torah, it's not capable of absorbing all of it. And that's why sometimes you see that uh, a Jew will listen to a Torah, a non-Jew will listen to the Torah, and the two will get worlds apart of knowledge. It's not capable of doing it, but that's also why you see people that convert. They may have been able to learn a lot of Torah before they converted, but they only retained 5-10% of it. Once they converted, they can't learn as much Torah, but they retained 50-100% of it. Two different worlds apart. you got a supercharged Neshama, and the Rambam says that as soon as a person converts, they get a brand new neshama, they consider a brand new baby, that's their birthday, that's their everything, They're not, they have no connection whatsoever to their previous neshama. So, so far, so good. Now, as far as that neshama, that neshama is not necessarily a brand new neshama. That neshama was there at Mount Sinai. Which means, according to the Arizal, that that neshama got the punishment that it was actually a, uh, a Jew at one point. In some cases, it was a Jew. In other cases, it could be a Goy that was part of the nations that wanted to convert, but the nation didn't want to convert. When Hashem went to all of the Sarim, all of the angels of all the nations, and He offered them a Torah, they didn't want, it, they didn't want a Torah. There were a few people within each nation that wanted it. He said, I can't give it to you only. I can only give it to your entire nation or to nothing. But since you wanted it, I promise you that I'll bring you in a Gilgul, in a reincarnation, that you'll be able to convert, you'll be able to get the Torah. That's one example. But another example is that a Jew that makes certain types of sins can get the punishment of coming back as a Goy. Can get the punishment of coming back as a Goy. And uh, their Tikkun would be to convert. Another example that I have from the Zohar Kadosh is that there are certain types of uh, neshamot that are very special neshamot that are hostages of the Satan himself. Because they're super powerful neshamot, super powerful one side or the other side. If they convert, they can become huge, huge tzaddikim or tzaddikot that could uh, do things that are very special for the nation. If not, they can become Hitler too. And there are certain neshamot like that that we know, for example, Yitro, Ruth. They had all of the opportunities in the world to be the most wicked people on the planet. Yitro was the Pope of his day, had a lot of power, a lot of money, he could have done a lot of evil things. Ruth was the daughter of a king. She didn't need anything. She didn't need anything. She didn't need to go marry some old man. For what? She wanted to go back to Abba's uh, house, multi-billionaire, that's it. And many, many other examples like that. Um, and you see that there are certain people that, you know, there's different types of converts. 
From my experience, I've seen several different types of converts. Some converts are like superheroes. They come, they convert, and they their whole life is Kiddush Hashem. They go, they learn, they, they uh, teach, they do a lot of amazing things for Amisai. Sanctify Hashem's name day and night. Superpowers. Some people are coasting. Not coasting as in a bad way, but coasting meaning they fulfill their tikkun, they convert it, they eat, they live a relatively simple life, they have their isuim, they have their, uh, their problems, but overall they live in a relatively quiet life. Potentially these could be these people that are the other options, which is their tikkun was to convert, or perhaps they, uh, you know, they were part of the nations that were promised to convert. And then there's the fourth one, which is the reshaim. The ones that were, uh, were reshaim, stayed reshaim, but they converted for the wrong reason. They converted for a girl, they converted for status, they converted for the wrong reason, and this is the Erev Rav. This is the Erev Rav that we've already had among us for 3,300 years, and unfortunately they still exist. So there's different types of, uh, of converts, just like there's different types of Jews. That's what the Gemara says, that the convert is like a skin disease for Am Yisrael. Skin disease how? Skin disease in a sense that they either remind us of how we're not good enough because they're such tzaddikim, or they're so bad, they make the rest of us look terrible. You know, so there's different different uh, things to learn from it. Again, the deeper you go into it. But nonetheless, the, the neshamot that are given to these, uh, to these converts were neshamot that already heard the entire Torah live. They heard it live. And uh, according to the Chachamim, there are, uh, are very rarely any new neshamot that come into the world anymore. Very rarely, maybe one in a generation. Maybe. And according to the Stipe Gaon, almost a hundred years ago, he said there's no more, neshamot, no more new neshamot, no more gilgulim, no more nothing. Whoever dies, dies. Not coming back anymore. Can't rely on gilgulim, can't rely on reincarnation. There's just too many neshamot in the heavenly body called goof that are waiting to come to the world. No one can rely on uh, fixing themselves the next time. Says Mashiach is already too close. Stipe Lagon says that whoever is here is here. Whoever makes the train makes the train. Whoever doesn't, finished. But that's also why when uh, a woman came to the Stipe Lagon asking him for a bracha for a shiduch, he told, Oh, he's not Jewish though. He said, What do you mean he's not Jewish? He's uh, the, the, the best student in Yeshiva. I didn't say to break up with him, I just said he's not Jewish. Just make sure he's Jewish. She goes, wait, no, no, break the Shidduch? No, I didn't say break the Shidduch. I said he's, he's the best, I know he's the best, the best student in the Shiva. Yeroch HaKodesh type But he's not a Jew. And they verified and they found out that his mom did a reform uh, conversion. So even though he ended up becoming a tzaddik, he's still not a Jew. So he had to go to a uh, Giyu. But there's no stipler going anymore. So today you don't even know who's Jewish, who's not Jewish anymore. You have a lot of people that say they converted, they didn't convert. You have a lot of people that say they're Jewish, they're not Jewish. Hashem Rechem, you have to do a lot of investigation before you marry anybody today. You have to do a lot of investigation who their father is, who their mother is. You have to do a lot of investigation. Because more and more I, I see a lot of people are literally, can live their whole life thinking they're a Jew and they're not a Jew. Or opposite, thinking they're not a Jew and they're really a Jew. So a person, point is, who's a Jew? A person that complies with the Torah. Whoever doesn't comply with the Torah is doomed anyway. Whether they're Jew or non-Jew, they're all doomed anyway. They're doomed in this world, doomed in the next world, if you don't comply with Torah. 
So it's important for a person to delve into the Torah because that's the only way they're going to find out who they really are. Anything else? Beseda, I think, uh, when, when's the uh, next year? Is what, Sunday? Tuesday, Yom Kippur. Okay, so next year, Bezal Hashem is going to be Sunday night. Uh, we'll have it in Hollywood, Bezal Hashem. Uh, do about something else, and then uh, I believe uh, uh, week after that we'll do we'll finish this Mishnah Bezal Hashem. Uh, anybody have any questions? Feel free to ask, uh, send text messages, and all that other stuff. But at the same token, I think that there's a lot for us to think about, a lot of work for us to do over these next few days before Yom Kippur. Uh, to uh, to get to uh, start doing tshuva, get to the level of saying I'm uh, I'm sorry. Amen ve amen.